he's right. We're going to leave him right back where he's got to pick up from. He becomes the discussion starts as he's becoming an accountant. Disciple, tell us about your father and the accountant now. Go ahead. It was epic fail because what wound up happening was I was at Baruch College and it was a guidance counselor. Her name was Angela Anselmo. She was the director of the SEEK program. The SEEK program is a search for education, elevation, and knowledge, right? And meet the needs of students who are considered to be economically disadvantaged and economically unprepared, which I was. But she's a big book, book author now. You can see her book um, on becoming New Yorkers. And that, and that takes an intimate look about two sisters that grow up, first generation Puerto Rican born, raised in New York during the 50s and 60s, right? But at that time, I was, I was writing for a magazine called The Ticker. And I, I had picked up some journalistic skills. And so um, I, I met with this guy named Ralph Davis after seeing his photo in the paper. And Ralph, Ralph was... Um, Ralph was the kind of guy that um, he was friendly, you know, he was a cool guy and he was approachable, right? So what wound up happening is um, I meet with him and, you know, I understand that he, he tells me about his background, you know, he's familiar with the crash crew because the crash crew lived with, you know, lived in his area in Harlem because we both come from the hood and especially in this guy, Disco Dave. And so Disco Dave, is the one that trains him in karate, right? And so we both have similarity. We both love music, right? Because at that time, even though I went to church, I still loved, liked hip-hop music, right? And, and so Ralph and I have, I have a connection. He gets me to engineer the show. And so um, I'm engineering the show, and I'm looking at the studio equipment, right? They got the, the SL-1200 MK2 turntables, right? And these were the definitive turntables. They got the fresh ones, the new ones. I'm like, oh, straight out the box. And so this, the studio had a Tascam tape recorder, um, an eight-track cassette, um, and they would play, like, you know, for ads and announcements. And they had this big storage of, of, of records, right? And so um, at that time, after doing some time with him, he said, yo, why don't you get into some music or whatever? I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. And so that's how I formed the name DJ Disciple because I wanted to, you know, I was writing about gospel music in particular. And um, I said, you know what? I want to do some gospel events. And so somebody in the Refuge Temple Church, they said, oh, you should do skating events. So I do the skating events at a, a place called Skate Key in the Bronx. Oh, yeah, I remember Skate Key. All right, yeah. So I, I work at Skate Key and that's kind of, you know, straightforward kind of set up like, you know, Guru College. But then they said, oh, you were really good. Do you want to play at this other place? And at this other place was the Empire Roller Skating Ring. Right? And there's a guy named that was a protege of, of Flowers. There were two fl- protégés. One was Big Bob, right, who worked with Flowers. And the other one was DJ Debonair. Debonair, and then you have Big Bob. So Big Bob, um, he's like kind of, because I've never seen a Yuri mix in my life. And Big Bob is like, you don't know how to make this mixer, boy? So I said, nah, man. And so Big Bob takes his time out to show me how to mix it is work, how the knobs is working, everything. He was the right guy to show you. He's the, he knew how to work that mixer really well. Great DJ. Right, right, because you know, Rick Wrong installed that system, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm playing records like Let My People Go, you know, the Hawkins Family, 
Chosen, Vanessa Bar Armstrong, Commission, Philip Bailey, because at that time, you know, gospel music had become more urban, right? So I'm at Refuge Temple, and they assigned me to be that drummer for Refuge Temple. Um, and it was the first time I had played for a gospel group, right? And so because I was listening to Edward Hawkins records, they were doing all of these chops. You know, this, you know, it wasn't undisciplined. It was still in the pocket. But, you know, you was doing a lot of riffs, a lot of raps, right? And so Dan Jay is the program director at WWRL. And show gets so big that it's on a cable TV network, right? Holds about 3,000 people, right? And the drummer's not there. And I wind up playing for the Cathedral Choir. And it was a radio broadcast. And Roy, Dan Roy was living at me. You know why he was living? Because I didn't have um, the pocket skill. Oh, and really? Like a singer be singing, la, 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 la. And I'd be like, I was all over the place. So I had to learn musical discipline from that church. And so um, I was learning that. And me and Lobby at that time, we were living about, you know, on, with, 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 with mom. And Vernon, you know, Larry started getting into like a different kind of music as well as gospel. He got into um, the Black Rock Coalition stuff, and he worked with Vernon Reed. You know, um, you know, it's, it's, the group was called Gabriel's Horn, and he worked with Vernon Reed and Arthur Rain, and they played with Gabriel's Horn. This is back in 1983, and so um, it's 85, and he's doing stuff with the Black Rock Coalition. He's doing good stuff. Um, but it's not until 1986 that a guy named from Harlem named DJ. Okay. Um, he's a DJ that plays wait, wait, wait. at Park. Hang on. Say that again. He introduced house music. Right. Start, say that again because it got all, we lost that part. Say that again. DJ Jazz introduces me to house music. Right. Okay. And he's a DJ that played at Rucker Park game. He's from uptown. And so. I fall in love with house music, right? And the reason why, you know, he was playing me some records, I was like, wow, this is really good stuff. You know, the thing I loved about house music, and I w- I've been challenged by it a lot of different times, but the things that we know about house music now, collectively, I'm just talking collectively, baby. House music is morally neutral. House music is positive. No lot of cursing in house music. Find a lot of talking about drugs, Okay. You don't see a lot of degradation in women on the lyrics in house music, right? And then house music doesn't change the way I think or talk or how I treat other people, right? And then house music really is not hindering or replacing my relationship with God. You know, music is is meant to be enjoyed like sex, like money, and other things. It can be used for good or bad purposes, right? Now, there was conflict when I first got into house music. The people say, oh, it's not of the world. You're not supposed to be like the world, you know. But I also understand that God will never forsake you. He looks beyond your thoughts and needs and meets us at our needs. You know, and nobody's going to church because they're perfect. They go to church because they're forgiven, right? And even if you go to church, you still have to maintain your faith. So, you know, I understood and accepted house music. And when I was doing house music, I said, okay, 
you know, I have, I'm coming to the understanding that I can do the house music and I can be the DJ disciple, but remember one thing that only what you do for Christ shall last. Only what you do. So I have that in my mind, right? And so these nightclubs starts opening up the tunnel, the palladium. Um, and I'm influenced by some of the DJs that come out of here, Roman Ricardo, Johnny Dinell, right? So Johnny, Roman Ricardo is the one that brings everybody together. He knows how to hold the room together. And so with, 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 with Rich, there was a guy named Rich Lamar um, that came to the station and um, he was an influential person in my life because he worked at Private Eyes, right? Private Eyes was the club that was before Sound Factory Bar on 21st Street. Before there was a Sound Factory Bar, there was a Private Eyes and it was an upscale venue. So you had Diamond Girl, Kasim, um, and so we did our first showcase with said G from the Ultra, Ultra Magnetic MCs. And um, Ralph had met him from the Mike and Dave parties because Ralph was doing security for Mike and Dave parties uptown. And he brought him brought them downtown for an interview, and our crew was called the Sound Experience Crew. And so they was, they was promoting a new single called Ego Tripping at the time. And, you know... And, you know, Ultra Magnetic MCs is Cool Keith and Seji and um, T.R. Love and Mola, right? And Seji, you know, he was the one that, like, kind of came up with Scott Rock and, you know, the Boogie Down production. I don't know if people know about KRS-One and the Boogie Down production. But these were, like, these were self-conscious hip-hop records that most people um, look to, right? Because they, the rappers at that time had become, like, secular preachers. They was able up street and they was like the newscasters they were the cnn of the streets and so um you know we we started up and you know we we i started seeing the house scene and how it was different because the house scene of the guys you know they they had their own look they had their kango hats i don't know if you know about this kind of culture lenny you know, they had gazelle glasses. Run DMC culture. Are you crazy? Yeah, Louis Vuitton, Lee jeans. And so you now, hang on, you gotta go to Jamaica Avenue, not far from me, to yeah. go get Sergio Takini track suits and your gold chains with your right. big. So, but the house club was different, right? Because we, we was like back in the days in the 80s. We had that faded mohawk, and sometimes we dye it, right? We had the ripped jeans, the spandex, the baggy pants, you know, um, the patent boots, the velour suits, the Doc Martens, the Benetons, the you know, the, the, the were doing a, you know, you had biker shorts, combat boots, feline sneakers, right? And so, you know, as that's happening, you know, I'm into the, I'm starting to immerse myself in the DJ culture, and Larry, my brother. He's working with Subculture 9, which is part of the Black Rock Coalition, right? But I needed yeah. some kind of passage because, you know... Oh, at, young disciple. Check him out with his... Look at his look at his haircut, everybody. Look at that. Okay. Young, so, so what winds up happening is, um, you know, two things start happening. One thing is, is I start going to Fort Green a lot, and I meet up with a girl named India, and she has a friend called Mark Doc and Scott. We become friends. And so in Fort Greene, there was a guy that played music. His name was DJ Rev, right? And Jimmy Brown. And he would play in Fort Greene. And so he asked me, yo, you want to play some music? Da-da-da-da-da. 
And I had some hip hop and I knew how to, you know, it was my first time really playing properly in full green. I said, yeah, man, I play. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm going to play. And so what I wound up playing, and I, and I did really, really good. I did well. Um, and that was my right of passion to go to Fort Green. I never, like, you know, if guys see me late at night in the street, because I rocked that party, they said, oh, yeah, you get the right of passage because you rocked the party. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now you can, you can hang with us because you rocked my hood. But um, Richard Lamont is, because I was into house music, he's the one that taught me how to mix. Jazz, DJ Jazz, taught me how to play for a crowd because it was the first, he was the first one that exposed me to like Marshall Jefferson Move Your Body, right? He's the first one. So what winds up happening is, is that um, house music is hot at that time. And there's a woman that we both know, right? That, that is seeing, um, that knows Larry that came up, like, because I was in the Riverside and they, there was a group called a Color, color Guard back in the 70s. Her name is Tanya Wynn. Oh, yeah, Tanya. So Tanya is a friend, is friends with Larry. You know, she's a neighborhood of, 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 of Farragut, and she's friends with Larry LeVan. And, you know, at this time, the Paradise Garage is closing, so she's doing the, the closing from the Paradise Garage. And, um, you know, before close. So she was, but, you know. But tell them who she's working under, what pseudonym was it that she was under Tanya Wynn? Well, it was, it was two Puerto Ricans, a Dominican, and a black man, right? And at that time, that record was, um, you know, you know, at that time, that, that record was under Groove Line Records with Jim McDermott. So she hooks up Larry with Jim McDermott, right? And so um, Larry, you know, um, he's the one that really, really got into, like, you know, getting into... Jim McDermott and connected with him. And Jim was like, yo, this, this, this uh, Black Rock Coalition stuff ain't working out for you. Why don't you come right with me? Because they see him as a great writer. Right? And so he goes to Jim McDermott's studio on College Point and so forth. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm rocking roller, roller rinks and Rich Lamont is still teaching me, rocking Rich is teaching me how to DJ, you know, while he's breaking that private eye. And right. so I was crossed, right? Because I'm this open format DJ. You got Eric B. and Rockin, Boogie Down Production, Public Enemy, you know, Jazzy Jeff. And then on the other side, I'm starting to understand and see the emergence of a man called Todd Terry. Right? <laughs> the Todd Terry in the city, I'm starting to fit about fingers, Xavier Gold, you know, Steve Still Hurley. Yep. But, but it was really for me, Todd Terry, because you know, Todd was a major contributor to the house, the hard house movement, right? Because it wasn't smooth like the garage music. It wasn't like that. It was rugged, you know, and so people loved that, you know? And so I'm still listening to, like, Marley Marl on the radio, Roman Ricardo, and Johnny Dynell. And right. I was held prisoner by, you know, Downtown Records because, you know, instead of being addicted to any drug, the vinyl became my addiction, Right? So I would go to Downtown Records and Ralphie Soto, he's like, yeah, Johnny Downell played this, didn't he? He said, yeah, I got it. And then from down there, I just went down here from there. I became their prisoner. That you know, was, you know, so I, 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 but I love the music because, right. like I said, it was, it was morally neutral, right? Yeah. And so you had so many different eras of hip hop. You had the, the hip house, all of that, you know, you had a lot of different styles of house. 
Um, you had the Liz Tories, the traditional house. And then, you know, of, of course, in New Jersey, they were doing their thing, right? And so um, those are the things that, that was really, really influential to me, you know, early, early on. And, and I, was, I, was, I was really, really grateful for that time and understanding of, you know, what it was. But I wanted more. And so what wound up happening was I saw Ralph McDaniel have a success on ch- Channel 25. And it was the same, same place that housed WNYE 91.5. It was located on 112 Tillery Street. And um, it was, it was the, the general manager was Terrence O'Driscoll. Now, WNYE was owned by the New York City Board of Education. You get me? So it was owned by them, and it was, it was, that was the official station. And so he said, I had to work my way up, you know, if I wanted to get on the radio, you know, to broadcast live. And so my mother, she never really connected to the church stuff. I would show her play, me playing on TV and say, hey, mom, I'm, you know, several, she wasn't really interested. But when I got into high school, she was connected. Right? She was like, what? You're doing house music on the radio? At one point, she was like, yo, you got to go. But when okay. I did house music, she was like, oh, you can There he is. There he is. Disciple on the radio. So here we go. I'm on I'm on the radio, 2 to 5 p.m., right? And so the, the, the layout of WBMB has got better microphones, you know, got better studio monitors, knobs, you know. And there's a guy named Dale Burley that was a sound engineer. And he was working with an assistant called um, Marvin Miminger, right? And so the show immediately has success, right? We have a lot of people listening. Because I'm playing, at that time, a lot of regular house with Acid House. Because Acid House starts to really become big in 1988, right? And so my mom, she, this is how my mother connected to me. She said, you know what? You need to get a woman on the show. Not just the host or to be the mic person, you need to get some a guest DJ to also play the music, right? So my first host was India Lawson, and then a little bit later it was Diamond. Diamond. Um, I wasn't satisfied with just having a show on WNYE. I still felt like I was missing something out. I was missing out on something. And so I get to work with WHCS, Hunter College Radio, right? I go down there. And I meet with Nikki Jones. I say, hey, Nikki, you know, can I, can I get a slot? You know, and she gave me a Thursday night slot. And at that time, I was, I was working opposite because uh, an hour after, I think later on, or later on, there was a guy named Georgia Ponte. Househeads know him as Sylvia Commandos. He was also on the radio. Saliva, Saliva Commandos, everybody. Saliva. Yeah, he was also part of WAC. Right, yes. working with a lovely woman named Kimberly Sterling, a, a dear to my heart. Right, and so I'm playing the music, and there's these two guys from Five Beta Sigma, Monty Collins and Steve Miller. Right, and they're like, "Yo, who's playing the house music?" Like, I don't know. So they ask Nikki, "Who's playing the house music?" It's like, "I'm playing the house music." Yo, yo we got people partying upstairs, man. What's happening? And so the problem. You got people partying upset. We got a problem going on. What's who's playing? It's a good problem, right? It's a good problem. Are you available to do a party? I said, Yeah, I'm available to do a party. I said, Okay, 
Well, you know what you got to do? If you want to get down with this party, you got to go to Studio 54. Right? So I said, okay, cool. I'll stop by Studio 54. And so I go to Studio 54. Right? I meet a nice lady named Karen Nurse. And that's the first time I get to see Larry LeVan. It's the first time. Right? And so what wound up happening is uh, Monty, you know, they watching me. They see I'm having fun. And he said, you see that guy up there, Larry LeVan? You need to play exactly like him. At that time, Larry was playing like records like LSD, you know, took my love away and so forth, right? So I'm late in the game. I'm like, really? I said, yeah, you got to play like this guy, Larry LeVan from Paradise Garage. And they hold him in high, the five Beta Sigma held him in high, high esteem. So you know, I said, who am I going to get a sound system you know with? Why? You know why? Because the Friday night party was big with the college students. Right. That's why. That's why they held him so high. They loved him on Fridays. Right. So college parties was hot, right? Big time. Big so time. I the student center cafeteria. I said, man, this 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 sound system is too huge. Who am I gonna get? You know, this is for thousands of people. Who am I gonna get to do the sound system? Right? So Debonair was one of the, like I said earlier. He was one of the people that worked with Flowers, right? He became his own DJ. He created his own niche. And at that time, um, he, was, he was trying to put on, because he, he, he had it on his, basically he had a sound system, but he didn't keep it at his house. He kept it at this guy, Rock and Ranch's house, right? Rock and Ron, right? He, Rock and Ron worked with the DNA and Hank Love show, right? which is another radio station that was popular for underground hip-hop. And they were trying to put on a young guy, Debonair, and this guy, and his name was Sean Carter, Jay-Z. Right? Because Jay-Z's sister was seeing um, the brother. Right? And they had a baby and so forth. But, yeah, so Jay-Z would come through and they were, Debonair was trying to put him on. And so Debonair, in the midst of that, you know, working with George, you know, with, with the Lucky Brothers, he, he said, you need, you need a sound system? I said, yeah, this is how much it's going to cost, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't really see a lot of money from it, but it was good enough. And so he comes in with this sound system, and it just changed the whole game. He had the Sarah Vega L36 speakers, the AEV tops. He had, um, he bought like four Altec horns. He was like, yo, tweeters. He bought two crown amps, the 2400s, the 1800s, the QSC EQ. He had the Yuri mixer that I got accustomed to. He bought the turntables. He bought the whole thing. You could hear the music down the block. That's the way it's right. So it's basically everybody basing your face, eyes, in your eyes. In their face. And so what happened was... Eyes in your eyes. So mistake number one, right? Here's mistake number one. So... You know, the, the Hunter College was a bridge, bridge into the gap between the college party goers and the party goers from the garage and the club party goers, right? And it brought the hip-hop scene in, right? So instead of going to Red Parrot, Union Square, whatever, you go to a, a college party, at least to set it off. And so what winds up happening is, at one of my very first... This is where Shoot the DJ comes in, right? Shoot the DJ. Because my, my Monty, one of the guys... He's like, yeah, play house music. So I'm playing house music. And then he says, go into reggae. 
Right. What's cardinal sin. What's the cardinal sin, Lenny? When after you, like you, sometimes you you don't play enough reggae. So you play house music, you get angry, fight you. So one of the dancers, one of the one of the, one of the um one of the guys is like, "Yo, man, go back to house music, man," because he ain't getting his groove on, right? He ain't getting his groove on. So he's like, "No, go back to house." And I make that cardinal sin mistake. Like, oh man, play the reggae music. <laughs> you know, when you're talking to Caribbean people, it's not enough reggae. Right? Never enough. You can do it half an hour. It's still not enough reggae. Enough. <laughs> Never enough at a house party. Never <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm dealing with, right? And so um there's 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 people that come for me because obviously after I work with Dewey and I work with Indy. She's got a group of friends that come to her. So I was dealing with them. And then I was doing Baruch Party, and there was a guy, um, Justin uh, Hippolyte Jr., and Arthur J., and a guy named Devin. They would come. So I started to formulate my real first party following. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I was playing records. Like, I was mixing it up. I was still playing on the house record, but I had to mix it up with some Big Daddy Kane and with some raw bass. And then, and then, the college kid that was up, you know, obviously the first record Monty tells me to play is like, okay, I need you to play this one record. I don't care what else you play. I need you to play this one record. One What's record. Carl uh, Bean, Born This Way. <laughs> so I was like, uh, do you know? And I didn't question it. I just didn't question it. I said, okay, no problem. Like this, right? Into his records. And so I started, I'm starting to do these college parties. And he's saying, I want you to play this other record. Larry played it. ESG, Stand in Line. I want you to play this other record. You got this other record? Uh, Melting Pot. No, no, no. Then, he, then it got cut. I want you to Baby Wants to Ride. <laughs> okay. This is not really clashing well with my spiritual situation right now. Baby Wants to Ride so high. Baby uh, Wants to Ride. So, my friend, Sabrina Vasquez, she's like, no. Oh, Disciple, you know, you're doing these college parties. This, this ain't working out. I, I don't like this for you. You, you, should, you need to be in the underground. You're going to these clubs, you're playing these college parties, and you're good with the success. That's fine. But you need to go somewhere where they're playing real underground music. And she takes me to the States. And guess who I meet at the States while having a summer? DJ So, I mean, hey, and he's telling me about this party called Wild Pitch. And Wild Pitch is like, um, it's got several people involved. Uh, Patrick LaFont, Trevor Biggs, um, Ernest Menino, Greg Day, uh, who's the, the real, real person. In, you know, a real great person that, that, that kind of helped me out. Um, and, you know, along the way, they have these hosts like um, Buddha Ray, I meet dancers like Marjorie Smith. And so after the Paradise Garage place closed, that was like the pity party to go to, right? Yeah. Because, you know, Big time. because, you know, the crack epidemic was happening, you know, AIDS was happening. So the man didn't really want nightclubs, you know? And so they started, you know, doing these parties. And so immediately, you know, I, 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 I get to understand, you know, Nick Jones, Bobby Condon, Timmy Richardson, you know, and so they say, okay, you ready to do a gig here? And I, because I go to the party, I support it. And I say, yeah. So the first party I go to is the world. 
and Todd Terry had a residency as well as well as Dave Rowley. They all played at the world. The world is on the east side of Manhattan and it's well esteemed club. And that was like um that was uh, one of the first gigs because I take it back. Let me go back. Let me go back. Doing the Hunter College parties, that wasn't my first gig. My first gig was actually Studio 54. Because what wound up happening was I was doing the Hunter Party, but it outgrew itself. And so that winter, they had me do Studio 54. It was my first time I had played in a big major club. And it wasn't the scale of what it, what it was when Kenny was playing, but it, was, it still had more numbers. It had a lot of people from the college universities coming from everywhere. And as I was playing on that circuit and I was doing Studio 54 and I did well at it, um, I was able to succeed because of Monty's suggestion and Steve's suggestion. Because of that, I started getting even bigger events. I started getting um, events to get to play at Jones Beach. I got to do events at the Greek Fest and, and, and um, the Greek Fest, right? And so those were, those were really, really big parties. And so, but getting back to um, getting back to what, the wild pitch parties, um, you know, I was I was hot, I was doing my thing on the radio, right? And we were, you know, wild pitch moved from party to party. We got one sixty Crosby. Um, it was um, uh, between Leakman Houston, which was where you know Junior Vasquez had the baseline party, right? And you played at a couple of wild pitch parties yourself, right, Lenny? Twenty one Hudson six two six. <laughs> yes, six two six Crosby when the right. uh, uh, his dance studio. You played there too. So right. did Kenny. So did David Morales. Like, I was a resident DJ there, and I I really really enjoyed it. You know, because we had people like Larry play, Larry Levan. That's right. Uh, Timmy Regisford. You know, and they would go till seven in the morning. Various warehouse spaces. Right. They got T Scott. So the reason why. Um, it was so special when Kenny Carpenter came out because I played with Kenny Tunnel where Wild Pitch was happening. It was a flyer. It was, I was so happy that a fellow Farragut DJ and myself were built together to play at the Tunnel for a Wild Pitch party. And it was the first time I really heard Kenny Carpenter properly. I really, really heard Kenny Carpenter. And I was like, wow, this guy's going places. After that, he blew up. He started traveling and everything. But the people I was going to the party were like Jennifer Lopez and we had Rosie Perez. We had Wesley Snipes. We dancing, did that. dancing, hanging yeah. out and dancing. Not superstars yet. They were dancing. No, Fat Five Freddy, right? That's right. John F. Kennedy, Mike Tyson, you know? And then we had, like, you know, we had, like, David Cole. We would host. David Ian Extravaganza would host. And there was a guy named Frank Thomas. Um, Frank Thomas was one of the main promoters for Wild Pitch, but he would also go to the Hunter Party. Right, so I started playing with Wild Pitch often, conjunction with doing a Greek freak. And doing a Greek freak is, is, is like a stick. It was at first in 1987, it was like a, a one day affair. And then it turned into a weekend affair, right? And so, you know, I started playing for artists like Liz Torres and Jomanda, right? Main Source, Special Ed, and, and Run DMC. And so, closing the show for Run DMC. To me, it was it was crazy, right? On top of that, getting to do the Jones Beach. Now, now, mind you, I'm on the radio, right? And so I'm playing all these different parties and we're com- completely immersed in the acid house. 
you know, you blame right Baxter, right Baby Ford, Reset San Antonio, you there, right? Bam, bam, Lil Lewis. You remember Tony Beltram, right? You playing the one sound on there's no wax. When you said Blake Baxter, I'm thinking of when we used to play yeah, on a stage right. another night. Yes. So, 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 what you call it? Sabrina comes back to me again. She says, "Yeah, you're playing a wild pitch. That's cool, but you really need to play at the choice." Yes. So, you yes. get me in trouble, right? So, before that, so I go down there and I peep it. And I'm seeing Larry LeVan play a record, and it's called Bang, Bang Your Mind, Bang the Party. And I immediately make that the staple of my radio show. That was the last record that Larry broke for me that that I felt like, wow. And so there was this new record that came out from that camp. And there was a Frankie Knuckles-produced record called Tears by Robert with with him and Satoshi Tomi and Robert Owens. Right? And at this point, I got 40,000 listeners, 50,000 listeners, right? And so I do my first interview with Frankie Knuckles, right? And so now I'm doing the interview. We're talking about the record. And he told me, he said, listen, man, you know, you're a good DJ, but you got a long way to go, son. You hear me? I said, okay. And I took that, you know? Um, He gave me construction criticism when I really, really needed it. And it came in time, too, because... You know, Richard Vasquez and Joey Lanos, they were inter- interviewing me for to, to play at the choice. Right? So here we go. First night at the choice, they get me to play, right? And um the first night I'm playing, you know, the college kids come out, and you know, there's levels to playing music, right? And I said, uh, yeah, I'm cool, I can play all the house stuff, but the people they want them, they want them classes, right? And I wasn't well versed on the class. And that's huh? what Frankie meant. That's what he meant that's right what there. Meant. That's what he meant. Because I, I said the same thing. Macho, so, so, he plays all this new stuff at that time. He don't play right, the class. So I was on the new stuff. Well, after all the college kids leave, now you got the vets coming in. The vets ain't coming in until 2 o'clock. And you better not be giving them the R&B classics at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. You better be giving them stuff. And I realized, you know what? I did good for the first night, but you know, when you're a boxer and you get get knocked out in the third round, that's how I felt like sometimes. And so I had to go to Debonair. I said, Debonair, help me out, man. I need some classes. And then I had to stay overtime doing late night wild pitch parties with Nick Jones and Camacho. And I had to learn how they did it, how they was able to maintain the floor because they wanted underground music. Right? And so... So we ain't going Hang on. So at that time, because I know the classics that we're talking about, but can you share some of the records that you were turned on to that opened your eyes to? Oh, that's what they meant. Seven, Fela Kuti. Um, You know, it goes on and on. But, the, you know, what happened was when I was playing and Larry LeBan comes in, right? And he says, yeah, son, you're playing, but you got to know how to work these records. And so all he does all Larry does, he comes in, he says, you got to work it like this and that. And the crowd immediately, <laughs> like, you could see the movement. I was like, they oh, crazy. Man. They were nuts, right? They were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm like, whoa, okay. I need to not only know how to play the music, I need to know how to work the records. Right? 
And so, you know, my brother Larry at that time, you know, he he he's working with um, MCA, Uptown Records. And Jeff Robinson is, is having to work with him. And he starts writing for Mary Gray Lodge. He starts working for Jeff Red. And he does um, a quiet storm called, um, you know, called Surrender Me from the, you know, because Jeff Red is known in the R&B circles for that song he called and told me. So he's doing big things. And obviously Stanley's on the road and he's doing great things, right? But, you know, playing at the choice and, 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 and playing with Wild Pitch, it wasn't exactly financially stable, right? And so, you know, you they get never, to that point. They uh, never opened it, I could. Those parties are not a financial party. Those parties are to, to work out and work the system and do your thing. Right. Never so, so, you know, my friend Ralph, he got a, he got a job with the police force, right? Because his dad <laughs> was teaching, like, you got to have stability, you got to provide for yourself, you know, you got a family, you have to have, you know, you got to get a union job. This way the, the employees won't fire you as fast. And, you know, I struggle with that. I think you see some of that struggle, right? And so it's I came to the conclusion that... Did they, say to you, did they say to you, you got to work for the man? They used to say that to me. You got to go work for the man. I'm like, I ain't working for the man. I want to play well, rockets. Here's what I realized is that whatever you do and whatever you know how to do, that's where your money's coming from. Whatever your passion is, that's where your che- paycheck is going to be. And wherever your heart is, that's where your currency is going to be. You know, I'm just, I had to learn to do what I'm trained to do, do what's in your gift to do, and do what's in your calling to do. And do, you know, whatever you did as a side hustle, make that your main hustle. And, and um, I, that's what I had to learn. I had to learn, um, biblically, that to be not weary and well-doing, just do the right thing. So um, a lot of times, you know, I roll the dice. You know, because jobs, you know, and we notice many jobs are sometimes designed to take you off your purpose, you know, for whatever a vision that you want. Now, jobs are stable, but they make you lose sight of what you're created to do. And it takes energy and strength for whatever you, you first had a desire to do. And that's the reason why you might see people like working a job, but they're not able to maintain their craft while having a job. So this was happening, right, for me, right? It's hard to juggle that. It's hard. It's hard. But what, you know what really kicked it off? What was the what was the kicker? Was was the was the Happy Land Social Club thing, right? With Julio Gonzalez, right? And leading us, you know, that Happy Land Social Club situation where the guy sets the, 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 the um he sets the club on fire and there's no interest and 87 people die. Do you know why that the largest mass murder in American history, right? Do you remember why that happened? Um, the yeah, because they had an so argument. And he, he was, was so working. jealous. He was angry that she went out. Right. And so, and so, you know, he he got a dollar per a dollar purchase of gasoline and he 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 poured it on the safe staircase. And yeah, 87. So the police put together a task force of of thirteen hundred, you know, nightclubs that were operating illegally, right? And so they, they shut down five hundred about 500 establishments, and, and the choice was one of them. So one of the benefits of things that happened, because, you know, the wild pitch parties and the choice, they, the wild pitch parties particularly, they didn't really let me close a lot of parties. And I needed to, you know, understand how, um, how that worked with, um, you know, doing those parties at that time, right? Um, I needed to know how classics work. So two people came to my aid. The first person was um, Len Q. Um, 
And so Lynn Q, she was, um, she said, you know what? Because I was at the, at the Choice One. She said, you know, you should come down to Queens. And so that's how I started playing at Club Mystery. It was on 8925 um, Merrick Boulevard. And she was down, she became ISIS. She was a rapper and she was down with X-Clan, right? And the benefit of it was, was that I was getting my radio show because I needed sponsors um, with New Tribe. And so I would see Fredro Starr at the barbershop. I would see, you know, before he was with Onyx and I'd see Bokeem Woodbine. And so house music was changing at this time because Afrocentrism, you know, was, was, was being told. You see a lot of women that was wearing earrings on their nose. You know, they, there was a lot of people with dreadlocks. They started wearing dreadlocks. And so you saw a lot of African gear, right? And that was replacing the spandex, right? And then we saw a lot more circles, right? Oh. Right? We saw more circles. Dancing. Right. And so hip-hop was getting more commercial, and, ha- and, and house music was becoming more underground, right? And so, you know, Wild Picture was surviving. You, you, you still had Save the Robots. You still have House Nation, you know, Cafe Comleche, you know, they was keeping, so our generation, even now, we keeping the New York scene alive. It survived on the old end, right? So, um, so the other person that I was working with was a guy named Marco Berry, who I met at Hunter College. And he would book me at, at the Blackball parties. And the Blackball parties was at the Marquee, right? Which was really huge, which is still huge now. The Octagon. He would, I would do the the, the, the the Jones Beach after parties. This one so, again. You know, I'm working on these parties, and it was really, really not until 1991 that um, I meet a woman at Strictly Rhythm Records called named Gladys Pizarro. Gladys Pizarro from Strictly Rhythm Records. Here we go. She's the one that lit the fire. It's all her fault. You know why? She said, hey, disciple, yeah, you playing on the radio, right? I said, yeah. I said, I got this unreleased cut I want you to do. I, want, I got you. I got for you. So guess she gives me. Wait a minute. We lost you. We lost your audio. Having a technical difficulty. Hang on. This is the good part. Strictly Rhythm comes into, into play. What happened? Why did we lose you? You hear me, disciple? You still hear me? I think we lost Disciple for a second. Hang on. Disciple, come in and out. Like, we re- re-log in because I lost you complete. Oh, man. This story is getting hotter than hot. We're up to the Strictly Rhythm story of 1991, and now I'm ready to hear what he's got ready to tell us how the whole industry thing really kicks off because of his radio show. But for whatever reason, we've lost his signal. And his WMYE show was the Diggity Bomb. I'm sorry. About there we that, go. Switching to user. Voice over off. Yeah, we got you. We're good. So we're up to we're up to Miss Miss G. Those that know her, Gladys Pizarro, Strictly Rhythm Records. Take us away, brother. Bring us in. So, so um, she put the bug in my brain about unreleased music. So I go to to Nelson Roman right from Big B. I get unreleased music from him. He puts me on his sweat. Uh, I start going to, street, uh, to New Groove Records, Downtown Records. I start going to all these labels and I start playing this music on the air. So it gets so bad I started going to people's house. I go to Todd Terry's house in Brighton Beach, right? Because, you know, and so Camacho was like, he's hearing it. 
And he's like, well, you know, I got my own connection. You know, he's working with Moving Records. He's working with AST. He's getting exclusives from Easy Street, from Blaze and so forth. And he introduces me to a guy named Kerry Chandler. Right? And so I go to Kerry Chandler's house. Lenny, I don't want to leave the house. That's what happened to me, too, when I went there. I don't want to leave the house. He must have gave me, like, three albums worth of material. And I drove record distributors crazy because it was like, yo, where's all this Kerry Chandler, this stuff coming from? Stuff that Disciples playing on the radio. So distributors were seeing that I was playing, I was still mixing in promos and new music, but I played a lot of exclusives, you know? Because at that time, you know, for DJs to make money, you know, selling mixtapes was a popular thing to do, right? Oh, big time. So, right, at that time, and a lot of people were selling it at Washington Square Park. So that's how I got to meet Roger Sanchez, you know? And Roger was like, you know, he's promoting his ego trip, a downtown record. And we, you know, we wind up talking for hours and so forth. And, you know, I, he, he had a party called Ego Trip with Wilson Santos. And so me and him, you know, we created a bond. He would listen to my radio show. And I would, you know, I would go out and I would support his party, you know? And so when Love Dancer became a hit, you know, um, he was getting a lot of remix work. And so I was being, I was like a real main supporter of his production. You know, and he would he would invite me to sit in on recording studios, and you know, um, he was the first person to like you know show me how you know electronic sounds was merged, how the samples was done. You know, he had all this technology, and this was like a quad studio. You know, yep. so he was really really influential to me, and you know, um, he would take records that that wasn't even the main version, and that would become the main version of the. Movie. He was he's from that era, you know? And so I would support him. He would come to, to my gigs. He listened to my radio show. And, you know, we had a connection because at the time, we both didn't like circles. Like, we didn't. Well, I didn't like circles. But hang on a second. If I remember correctly in WMYE, because I came to the station where you did the show, you used to have the call-in lines going crazy. And you would say things like, call in if you like this record. And the lines would light up. And yeah. that's how few records were hot, right? Right. And so the, the connection that we had is that, 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 that we both, we, we had circles at our party, right? And I wasn't particularly fond of them until one day, um, there was a guy named, a dancer named E. Joe Wilson. We got it, I'm at the tunnel and I pulled him off the floor. I said, yo, man, he's, you know, because I'm, I'm coming from the era of, you know, everybody danced with everybody. But that era had changed. And I had to realize that. You know, and and Egypt was like, I just go by how the music touches me. And from that moment on, I realized that, wait a minute, I'm making a mistake. Um, because what wound up happening was I realized that dancers, the dancers were my biggest supporters, you know, and they, they when they when the dancers come out, they brought out all these different people. They brought they were the ones that were really helping to expose house music as well as the DJ. So I put it hand in hand. It wasn't the DJs that was just blowing it up. It was also the dancer community, right? And that they were, that was the personal connection to the music, right? Because they had that energy. And That's so, right. you know, I would hear, because I, I, I played, you know, I alternated with, with Larry LeVan at the Choice, but then I would also alternate with, with Basil. And Basil was huge. 
And these are guys like Basil, Camacho, Nick Jones. I had to listen to them to really understand how to set moods for the night, how to play music for the crowd. I'm a young guy. I'm the young guy, right? But I'm okay. And I'm love everybody. Look at the lineup, Disciples, with Joey, Janos, Basil, Richard Vasquez, Victor Rosado, Robert. I mean, he had he had a heavy lineup at that club at that time. It was the only club doing that kind of music at that time in a club. Right. And so 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 you had dancers like Keith Boogie Williams who danced with Janet Jackson. You had Peter Paul and Kali. They was dancing with Crystal Waters, Shake, and um Shah, which way Shah Chef, Brian Footwork. You guys through hip hop videos, and they started doing tours in Japan, right? And so, what winds up happening is that that comes full circle for me, right? Because I did my first video in 1991 by Craze. Now, people that don't know Craze, he did the record. I said, "Shut up!" I said, "Shut up!" Uh, 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 uh. And so he was on this video. I'm doing this video shoot with Joanna, who comes out with this record called Freaky, right? So this is when, you know, everything is buzzing for me as far as that notoriety of starting to get somewhere, right? And so what, what, what happens is I get a call on the radio station from this guy named Latif Sumner. It's Latif's like, how would you like to play in New Jersey? Mm. Oh, I would love to play in New Jersey. And so, <laughs> so there's a guy um, named Butchie, Nelson Butchie Nervous, right? And he owned this big warehouse. And he would have me come and play at this club called 280, right? And so, you know, it was called, originally it was called Hardcore, the venue, I believe. And Deuce Martinez and Hippie Terralis were the, were, the, were the residents, right? And so, Hippie, Camacho, and Naeem, right? And Deuce was part of the Dynamic rock, Rockers. And then you had, like, Latif, right? He was, you know, he was, he was really putting everything together. And my first party I play is with Camacho. Because Camacho, we played at, you know, at, 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 you know, Octagon and did the Black Ball parties. Camacho was all over the place, right? And Camacho was like... I, a, he was a hot commodity at that time. He was hot. He was hot. Yeah. So, you know, they, they would name one of the parties the club, the Shelter at Club 280. That was the name of their party. The Shelter at Club 80. Home right? for the house children. Right, right. With Joanna and Alexis Pisuda. And so forth. So we get the dancers like Marjorie Ejo, Khalid, you know, Derek David Story, who's now called DJS, um, Tony McGregor, a, a woman named Carja and Madri that I was really close to. They would they would follow me to New York as well as you know my fourth grade crew and my Baruch College and Hunter crew. He would come up and sometimes Roger would come to see me at 280. So um it's about this time that I that I meet um, somebody that's you know starting to listen to my radio show, and his name is DJ Dove, right? And so Dove, he's, he's a big follower. He comes, and then there's a guy from Chicago that comes. His name is Glenn Berry. Now Glenn Berry, he's a master unit. He's a, a master student at the University of Wisconsin, right? And he comes to Chicago, and he's he, he, he's lives in Chicago, and he, he, he's staying with um Dan Johnson. Right in New York, and he's like, "Look, I want to come to your show, right? Because I want to tape it." I said, "Okay, you can, you know, take my show, no problem." Because he he becomes roommates with Derek Carter and Mark Farina. They Glenn is sending the tapes from the show to to Derek Carter, 
right? Because Derek Carter's working at Imports Record in Chicago. So people start hearing about my show and the unreleased mixes from there, as well as a station in Japan called Bay FM 78. They start listening to the show. They say, oh, we'll pay you for a mix, blah, 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 blah. So our crowds at 280, because at that time, Tony Humphreys had left Zanzibar. So that got big. And so Lativa said, let's go to Zanzibar. And so they do a sponsorship on Kiss FM, and I play at Zanzibar for two months. Right? I play, I do a, a good run. And through, during that run, that's when I really get introduced to Naeem Johnson. Naeem Johnson is another court cut. He's, a, he's another legend in New Jersey. Big time. Right? Because he's breaking in records like DOP, Bobby Snap. You know, and he, obviously he eventually goes to Black Box, which, you know, the man is legendary. So I meet him, and I meet another guy named Jazzy B. Now, Jazzy B is on the college circuit like me. Does Club 88. You know, he does all these places. So I'm doing a circuit with Jazzy B. I'm doing Soweto for Club 88 and Club America. And if Club 88 is where Todd Terry first heard me, right? Because I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't getting a lot of work in New York. I was I was working at the club called a Pyramid in the low oh, yeah. town. Yes, I remember so yes. the Pyramid. a lot. And so, you know, Roger... He looks out for people. He's a generous dude. And so he's like, look, uh, because of love dancing, he starts traveling. And so he takes, he said, listen, I want you to play at this gig in San Francisco. <laughs> I think we're going to be running out of time here, <laughs> lady, because I didn't even get to the UK yet. Keep going. We're going. Keep okay. going. Okay. So, so I'm in San Francisco, right? And so... Um, I'm getting my education in San Francisco. So San Francisco is where I really got my education about the rave scene. Because I realized that house heads are not raving, right? The rave scene had its own lifestyle. And I only heard about, like, Frankie Bones, which, you, you, Lenny, you're familiar with Frankie Bones. You, you, yes, you sir. Right? So, you know, the scene is what you look like, but the rave scene lets you be yourself. The raves, yeah, it's about the drugs and the sex and the music. You know, you've never heard anywhere else. You know, house music comes from blacks and, 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 and people, and, but the raves were adopted in the UK. So they were a different thing, right? And, and obviously, the raves adopted that whole, you know, um, the whole prayer thing peace, love, and unity and respect, right? And so the first party I play at, Lenny, is Toontown, right? Toontown is the first party in San Francisco to put the rave scene on the map. Look at everybody. Toon Town in right. Town at 177 Townsend. Right. So so check this out. Now, the first gig I get to play with, unfortunately, well, fortunately and for unfortunately, right, was with Marky Mark, Garth, and Jaina, right? From the Wicked Crew. Right? So Wicked Crew, these guys, Thomas, Marky, and Garth, they moved to San Francisco in 91. They, they do the Burning Man party, the full moon parties. And, you know, it's a, it's an all-night beach party with hippies and so forth, right? And so they got themes and production that's out of this. i never seen it before, right? And they was the ones that were, like, you know, I guess Toontown was the one that, like, they, that whole scene nurtured and participated in the dot-com boom, right? 
when we first saw the HTML, right? And so Toontown was Friday, and then I did another party, Carefree Dancing, on Saturday. Because you got to realize, like, San Francisco, as I later found out, you know, we pioneered by Doc Martin, you got Peter Baylor, right? He got that at your mama's house, and he worked with David Harness, and you got DJ Dan, who played at Mission. These guys were pioneers, right? Yeah, well, and also he had a Hoshkarelli running the hottest radio station for dance music in right. the great station in the world at that time. It was incredible. Everything okay. was out of got Preston, who owned, you know, who he co-founded 177 Towns, right? Right. And so, so, and I was like, I'm, I'm playing the opening night. I mean, my first time, there's like 7,000 people on it, 5,000 people. It's, it's, it's packed. And, you know, it was because of these kind of, at the time, they were doing these mailing lists, right? And so that's when you first hear of Brian um, Beldenhoff, right? Because he started that mailing list that, you know, in, this, in, the, in the San Francisco community. Because the rave scene, you know, it was in L.A., it was in D.C., and then New York, right? They started this hyperreal thing, right? right. And so I'm, I'm playing for Toontown, and you're seeing the ravers with sunglasses, you're seeing whistles, oversized smiley faces, T-shirts. Glow in the dark pacifiers, boiler suits, face masks, beads, whistles, ski goggles. I mean, like, and I, let me I, ask I, you, wait, 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 wait. Coming from New York, what the hell was going through your mind? Because I remember what I was saying. What the hell is this? Right. And I'm like, you know, they you try to play. Listen, if you play a vocal, the the, the, the crowd is gonna part like the next. If you play one vocal. Because they're not vocal happy. This ain't Jersey. This Frisco. They do things differently out here. Right? <laughs> Big difference from the east to the west. Right. But I survived it. And I'm able to play some other venues. Right? I play at Sunday. Um, I play at Peter Villa Sound Factory. I'm able to find some success playing in San Francisco. Right? And so, at the same time, I realized that there's not a lot going on for me anymore. And this is where... It becomes important. This was like one of the breaks in my career because Sound Factory Bar opens, right? And so Sound Factory Bar is located at the Savage with Don Welch and Barbara Tucker, right? So this is the first place. And I go there for a few parties and Don is doing his thing. But while that's happening, I meet Grandmaster Flowers at the Savage, at the Sound Factory. He had, he had recovered from drugs. And um, he was doing well. He was I was like, yeah, I got to have you for my radio show. And unfortunately, you know, um, before I could interview him for the radio show, he had passed away. And um, so going down the line, I met somebody else. And at that time, you know, it had moved. The party had moved from the bar to the Sound Factory Bar. And I met this kid from New Jersey named Todd Edwards. But Todd Edwards was really trying to get his stuff played by Louis Vega. And I said, listen, man, don't worry about it. I'll play your stuff. So I start playing Todd Edwards' music on the radio, which I felt was so uh, amazing, you know? He did his, like, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Different. It was innovative. It was fresh. And it was fresh. It was innovative. And I was like, whoa. So I'm meeting him, and then uh, I meet Bobby Davis, right? And so Bobby Davis worked for Shore Record Pool, Spinners Unlimited Recording Enterprises, 1852 Westchester Avenue, in the BX Bronx, 
And so Bobby, like he, he's a record proof director for, for Africa, Barbada, Africa, Islam, you know, and he says, listen, disciples, you need to go to a studio. And he's the first one to put me in the studio. He said, listen, I want you to do a studio EP because what happens is he, he falls in love with me because I'm, I'm playing and breaking his record by Alexis Suda, P. Suda, Slammy Baby. This was back in 90. So he was always following my show, right? And so I meet him, and then I meet, Camacho introduces me to my future booking agent, J.P. Thurman, right? And so what happens is J.P.'s telling me that, hey, man, there's a guy named Black that's, um, you know, he's in North London, he's selling tapes, of your radio show. And that's how he's getting to hear about me, right? My tapes is being sold in London, right? And so I, I realized at that moment, like, yo, I got to re- make a real commitment to really strictly be about house music and commit myself to the craft of house music, right? And so I, I left Hunter College Radio in 92 and I stopped doing open format. And um, I think that Nail on the Coffin was when I played at the Muse, which was formerly Mars. I was playing upstairs and Funkmaster Flex was playing downstairs. It was a battle, right? You're going back and forth. And then the next party comes and it's for the Jones Beach after party, right? And I'm coming to the venue and there's 15 people standing outside and Jazzy's like, I'm looking at Jazzy like, what's going on? And there's no needles in the venue. I got to go all the way back to Brooklyn to get the needles. You got 15. They were pissed off. So I was like, okay. So what winds up happening is during this time, Lenny, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing everything to tame my faith, right? And so what winds up happening is the more I'm getting into house music, my mom gets winds up getting more close to Christ. My mom gets saved, right? She wasn't really with me with the whole church thing when I first started. So that's how I have something. I was fighting rheumatoid arthritis at the time. And I was I was having, you know, I was back and forth. And so I wanted to come in and, you know, help, you know, what I would mom and get more involved. So I started staying more local. I started getting more committed. And there was a new pastor, um, Pastor uh, Mark, Mark D.C. Taylor, Reverend Dr. Mark D.C. Taylor. And, you know, they was, they was helping people with the drug program. Um, my brother started playing for more funerals because there was a lot of black-on-black crime. Uh, um, so he was engaged. They had an HIV awareness. You know, the, the church started, the church open door started getting more connected to the community. So I felt that that was a, a good part to play, you know, to, to be. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm still playing with Wild Pitch. And I think one of my last parties with them was at the Red Zone, you know, where eventually Puffy took over and started doing his, his, his um, parties. And so, like, hip hop is really, really becoming in full throttle. And so, um, I think we lost him for a second. Let's see if he comes back. UK, stay with us because this is where the, his time starts to shine when the UK thing starts really going nuts for him. Disciple, you still with us? Well, anyway, while we're at it. <laughs> Disciple there? Disciple, I think we lost you again. Oh, um, like, ready to come to London? 
His disciples still there? Brother D, I think we're losing his connection. Come on, everybody, stay with us. Let's not lose it. Those that just joined us for a real quick second, let me let me remind you all, I'm running a GoFundMe. Really important week. We're approached by some Hollywood people about taking this show prime time. I got to get a sizzle reel together and a pilot show. So True House Stories has grown from this homegrown thing, pandemic era show, to now possibly going to HBO or Netflix, Amazon Prime. There's some interest in the show for what we all have in the stories. So if all you can help us, please donate something. One sterling, one shilling, one pound, one dollar, whatever your currency is, please help us keep this show to the next step because we are onto something huge. And hopefully, Disciple will come back and clear up whatever happened on his end because this story is just starting to become what I expected the story to become. This is where he talks about the UK. Bring him back. Where is he? Come back, disciple. Let's see if we can put him back in. Add to the stream. Let's see if he comes back. So, once again, donate to the True House Stories Fund. We have a Hollywood situation. I have never told any lies. And this is another big thing. I've been praying on it, saying... Will True House Stories go to the next level? And all of a sudden, through our people, they came knocking and said, we love the show. We love the stories. We want to see it come all the way and bring it to the next level. Can you produce a sizzle reel and a pilot show? And we know Netflix is going to want to sign this show. I'm like, what? Is this crazy? But when I found out what it cost to do this sizzle reel, I was like, oh, my God, I don't I haven't worked in a year. I'm a DJ. In fact, I'm about ready to start playing again June 5th in Brooklyn for Becky Nunez. All right. I'm getting ready to come back out. My first gig professionally again. I feel like I'm starting all over again. But. Do you see the number there? 20,000. It may even cost me 30,000 to produce this pilots and everything. But if this show goes, do you know how huge this to be for everybody? First of all, I want to thank all the people that have been on our show. Okay. We couldn't have done this without all of you. All right. Everybody, week to week, strength to strength, the amount of shares. Share gets, this show gets shared on Facebook Live. It's like almost 400. Ah, Disciples back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hang on. I had to get on the. Um... We did a commercial. Well, why you, we, we went to commercial. We, we, we quickly moved fast. Hang tight. Without all of you, I could never have done this. And people like Disciple coming on, giving their time. And Louis Vega and David Morales and everybody that's come. And, and the contest, the participants like Sarone that's coming up, Paul Oakenfold, Carl Cox that was with us. Remember Carl's show? Three and a half hours. He didn't stop. It was incredible. Three and a half hours. We're going to go there with this man right now. Are you comfortable? Relax again. All right. So one dollar, one shilling, one pence, whatever you got, please give us 
what you can. And let's go back to the disciple. Wait, wait, wait. Give me, give me a couple of more minutes. Oh, just give me all a right. Time so, to get online with you. Disciple, get, yeah, get, all right. So once again, please, please help us out and donate to the True Stories documentary. It's, I don't think it's going to be a documentary show. I think it's going to be a controversial show where we have younger artists with the older artists. We're going to see, but we're going to make something that's going to be sellable and it's going to tell our legacies. And I'm going to try my best every week to keep bringing this, this boiler room type of show that I've been doing that seems to have worked for everybody and everyone has feeling what we're doing. And I, I consulted with some key people last few days about this, this GoFundMe thing. Cause I'm really funny about this. I didn't want to do it. And, and I asked some questions to some key people and this is what came back. They said to me, don't be too proud, Lenny. You've given out almost a year's worth of programming to everyone. Never asked for any money. I've never put up a please donation. Others have done it when they're DJing the live feeds. They put up the donation. There's nothing wrong with that. And I get it. But for in order for us to make this thing go all the way, we're going to need help from all of you. So if you can please share, if you could please share the GoFundMe, Karen, you know, put up that thing. And if Karen said GoFundMe, it's on my Facebook page, on the Facebook artist page. GoFundMe, the True House Stories documentary show thing. That's what I called it. Remember, I'm doing a pilot and I'm doing a scissor reel. And just for example, scissor reel is like when you go to the movies and you see the upcoming shows that are coming out, new Star Wars thing, 30, like two minutes, like in the darkness, in the night. And, and then they show this phenomenal like effects. Well, we got to do the same thing with this True House Stories show. And people, I never dreamed this would ever come to this level. I just did it to make everyone have hope and home. I gave everybody just something to hang on to, to hear our heroes. Disciple's a hero. Kenny Carpenter's a hero. These are all heroes of our game. We've all struggled. We went to the top, fell down, got back up. How Everybody loves that story of how you go up and down and how you stay up and how you come down and how you come back up again. They love that story. That story that says the realness, you know, and that's what we're going to keep doing here. True stories. And I'm hoping that disciple gets his power back and his. That's okay. Well, right now we're going to have to go. We're going to have to go solo. So you're listen. good. You're good. So, good. so listen, um, I made a mistake because um, what you gonna call it? Richmond Lamar was like, "Sound like you ball was not the savage; it was the old private eyes." I said, "Okay, I, I thought I said that, but it's like you did. You did say make- private eyes. You did say private eyes because I I knew it was private eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, back to the side. So, so right. So I go to London. Right, I get picked up by JP Furman. Um, I also get I get to meet Phil Asher. And Noel Watson. Oh, may he rest in peace. May he rest, may in, he peace. rest in peace, Phil Asher, right? And so um, they take me straight to Vinyl Solution, Labbit Grove. And he's like, they want to see what's going on. They want to see what goodies they got. What's the reputation all about? And so I start breaking out the acetates. And but uh, disciple, hang on, we lost something in translation here. Who was the first person to call you in New York to say, we want you to come to, to bring, invite you to come? J.P. Furman. 
And what happened? What was that? What what did it take to get you over there? What was the story behind that? Well, I had to get a permit. I mean, you know, and it wasn't, it was the, at first security was giving me a hard time getting in. But once I got through, you know, um, once I got through, it was cool. So, I, you know, I get there and I'm hearing the music because he's playing Kiss FM, right? And the first gig, you know, I, I, I meet up with, with Phil Asher and they want to make sure that I have the goods. And so I have that, right? And so I start breaking out records like um, it's going to be a lovely day, things like that, right? Um, stuff that they didn't have, um, right. that they didn't have no access to. Right. So I get that reputation as DJ acetate real quick. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they really love, you know, what I, you know, the music that I had. And so I get to play in the first club is the Lakota in Bristol. It's the first club I play at. Deli G year. spot. Deli G spot. Deli G Shout out to Deli G. I play Deli G spot. Right. And so, um, I played it and uh, it, it was shocking because usually I'm long, I'm used to longer sets and it was like a two hour set, right? We're not used to that. DJs are used to playing like ten hour set, eight hour sets all night long. Right. Right. So we're doing we're doing two hours, right? I said okay, and so JP really loves the way I'm playing, you know. Um, and I was able to win the crowd over, and they give me a ten minute standing ovation. The party goes so well. That they do an after party and I play till six, seven in the morning. Right? So JP's coming with his, his brother, Cy Furman, his, his girlfriend Laura. Um, you know, a lot of people start coming down. So they bring me back, and here we go. I, I you know, Kiss FM is starting to ask me for some mixes. Radio One is starting to ask me for some mixes. And I get to meet Bobby and Steve at Zoo Experience, Kiss FM. And so, before I leave this time, Gladys brings me in the office. She said, I got this cassette I want you to play. And it was deep inside. Nervous Records calls me up. I want you to break this record. Russian. Okay? Um, as I am... Hang on. Hang on. Disciple, I need you to play Butch Quick Higher. Yeah. Right. You're rocking, you're rocking heavy. Everybody's calling you. Yo, I need you to play Butch Quick Higher. Right. So, so this is a big deal. Right? And so, as much... So, so, so they're doing their party because they're promoting the party, Bobby and Steve, and it's at the podium in London, right? And I got these acetates. I'm rocking the crowd. Blah, 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 blah. I'm doing good at the podium. I'm doing great. Coming up, Paul Trouble Anderson. <laughs> Godfather. Right? And so, because and, the podium is like, it's the first place where I can really see blacks and whites partying together. And so Paul Trouble Anderson, hey, he comes in and his acetate sound cleaner than mine. I mean, <laughs> that is. I said, yo, where you get his acetates cut out? What's going on here? Right. <laughs> so, so I'm doing, I'm doing that, right? And um, it was a good party, but I learned a lot from Paul because he had just as many acetates as I had, right? I said, where is he getting his music from? Wait a minute, hold on here. Right. So it was a blessing because it was good for me. And I was able to, 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 to go to the acetate pl cutting place, right? And I said, okay, I need to get these, you know, I got to get my acetate cut right. So at that time, I mean, I have to say, London was really, as far as the atmosphere, 
as far as the vibe, you, you just, at that time, London was it, man. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I really, really, really loved London. And so um, I get to play at Feel Real at Spring Gardens, Covenant Garden, right? And I get to play with Rhythm Doctor, Evil Olive, and Femi B, right? Um, and Phil Asher, Rob Atkinson, these, these are DJs that hustled back in the day. They knew how to get a gig, right? And so I was able to be successful playing, you know, with them. Evil Olive, as a, as a DJ, she was amazing, right? It was the first time I heard a woman. Time. Great DJ. Right. And so, you know, as, as time moves on, I'm starting to run into more DJs that, you know, women in the industry that are really, really powerful, right? And so, comes the time, I'm playing at Ministry of Sound. And then my debut is for Burt Bevin's birthday, right? Right. So, I'm debuting, and Tony, I'm, Tony Humphries is playing the same time I am. Right? What they said, the maker and breaker. W right. <laughs> right. So they said they make, so I broke um uh Robin S by, uh Show Me Love. That's where it was first broken. I was breaking that record hard, you know? And um at that time, Bobby and I was, you know, we were working, I was doing studio work, and, and JP was curious, like, yo, I want you to do some studio work, you know, get some work, get, get some, some production work done. He was encouraging me to do that while I was touring. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm working with this guy, Bobby Davis. And it was at the time I was um, working with Eddie Perez from Smack Production. There he is, Eddie. Yeah, Smack. Uh, Eddie Perez, because I was breaking one of his records on the radio and he said, listen, I want you to do a record for me. And I said, okay, cool. You know, um, so I did a record for him and, um, you know, not, not do a record for me. I wanted him to play keyboards for me rather. Right, he was the hot keyboard player at that time. He was on all those records coming right. out of Jersey. So I'm still on tour, right? And um, that's when JP and um, I go up to Leeds to play for Stephen Rain at Hard Times, right? And as much as I loved Stephen Rain, I really loved the resident DJs because I didn't come in with the stupid suit. You know, you say I'm a superstar DJ. I never had a superstar DJ approach. Um, that's the empire, not the not, not no, hard. I don't have the hard times flyer. I don't have that. Right, right. So what happens is, I really like Miles Holloway and Elliot Eastwick. They were like unsung heroes in the northern house scene. Good and God. so I, I always took a humble approach about how I worked with other DJs, right? And sometimes, you know, the reputation or working with the DJs helped me understand the music a bit. You know, working with Nancy Noise, and then you would hear other women in the industry like Smoking Joe. Right, and then you had DJ Paulette, that were amazing women that knew how to slam. They knew how to jam, right? And then you heard of, you know, the Garage City Registers like Chrissy T, Jeremy Newell, you know. And so at that time, you know, I was doing my first EP for Bobby, and uh, it went well for you know, and it got me a gig at um, Angels of Love in Naples because it got licensed to Division. Right? And so Claudio Cocoludo at that time was huge in Italy. You know, Ooh. shout out to Ralph. Brother of um, God. He was a god. Maddie, you know. Um, Ricky, Ricky Fabio Fabio Vecchi. Oh, my God. So the Italian experience for me was, was major because they was never into the underground. The, you know, I mean, commercial music, they were completely underground, Right. And they had an MC at the Angels of Love parties that knew how to get that crowd going, 
right? So I worked with Smack Productions and I said, listen, Eddie, I want Todd Edwards to be on this EP. And so um, when I do the EP for On a Dance Floor, um, my mom, who was a fan of WBLS at the time, she got to hear me because she was really suffering through rheumatoid arthritis. And I made that, I, I did that record with Eddie and um, with Lem, Lemuel Blackwell as the vocalist. Um, and, you know, Eddie Perez right now, he, you know, he got a Grammy for Justin Bieber, Let Me Love You. So he's worked with, like, the Towers. He's worked with a diva. He's worked with KY, Janet Rushmore, Michael Watford, Casio. You know what I'm saying? So while that's happening, JP has other things in mind. He hooks me up with Booker T, right? And I do a record called Prove Your Love, and this is how I get to meet Booker T, right? The guy that's killing track source right now, right? And so, um, and, and at that same time, you know, um, JP's brother is named Simon Furman. And Simon Furman is, he collaborates and he does stuff with Grant Nelson. They're called the 24-hour experience, right? And the first record that comes to mind was I Need a Man. And, you know, at that time, Grant Nelson had, the, you know, the label Nice and Right. And I got to work, you know, in his studio. Um, but going back to the tour, like 1994, I was playing with the guy that kind of gave me my first interview. His name is Chris Mello. He works for DJ Magazine. And Chris Mello, you know, he was, you know, doing parties at the Zap Club in Brighton. So I played with him. And then um, I played at a, I played at Cream in Liverpool, right? With Andy Weatherall, right? And, you know, obviously Cream, the thing about Cream, you know, they, they was with James Barton and Andy Cowell and Darren Hughes. Cream was organized. And they was, you know, they do these big parties. And they believed in quality over quantity, right? Because they made superstars out of DJs, right? And so Andy Weatherall, who I played with that night, he was a key DJ in the acid movement, right? Because he played with, he did stuff for Primal Screen. Um, he, he, he remixed um, Bjork. You know, he was involved in Happy Monday. And obviously, the man who you have on the show next week, um, Alex Lowe, I played for him in 94 at To The Manor Born at Hardwick Hall. Um, which was like two centuries old, old, right? Right? So um, I played at the Empire in Middlesbrough, right? Um, which is old as Charlie Chaplin was opened in 1897, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I played Riviera Lights, Bakers. So I was doing all these parties. Um, and I really enjoyed the, the, the Enjoy Party as well with uh, Matthew Ballister and Ricky Morrison. It was the first time I... And obviously you interviewed Junior Boy Zone, um, Pete Heller and Terry Farley. I did their party in London. Um, and so we think about these old venues like Turnmills, uh, Maximus, and the Gas Club. Um, the Gas Club was, um, you know, I played with Alex Jinks Chamberlain who ma- managed Marshall Jefferson, nice. right? These were the, the clubs that paved the way for like British nightlife, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the big moment in 94, is was a couple of big moments, was um, Hard Times and Bagley's, right? Because Bagley's was the biggest club in London, near King's Cross, right? So you got me, Roger, and Tony Humphreys in the main room at Bagley's, right? And he named, Roger named it the Underground Solution Room, right? Then you had the Chicago with Maurice Joshua and Terry Hunter. And you had, like, the Strictly Rhythm Room with Pierre and George Morrell. You had Barbara Tucker, um, Todd Terry, Kenny Doak, 
right? Um, Grand Park, you know, the people I named, Phil, Bobby and Steve. And so in the main room, I was responsible for breaking a couple of records. On the nervous side, I was breaking Emergency on Planet Earth by Jamaraquai. On the on the other side, from Strictly side, I was breaking the Louis Vega produced bass tone. And I was playing that. I was breaking that, right? Mm-hmm. At this time, the radio show is now growing and moving records. Abigail Adams starts sponsoring the radio show, right? Abigail Adams is a major reason why I'm still on the, in the, on the air. And so my brother never, my brother Larry never heard me play music. And I'm thinking, hey, he's finally coming to hear me play. Finally. Finally. Coming out, he's coming to hear me. And he only comes to tell me that my mom passed away. Yeah. Right? And so um, she passes away. And uh, my brother Layton, my brother Layton, he, um, he, he was part of that whole crack epidemic speech. But what happened was he got clean. And he, he, went, he moved to L.A. And so um, after 94, I stopped playing drums in the church. I stopped, um, and my dad was like, you know what? Maybe you need to stay on the road because, you know, what happened at that time was the crack bill was passed by Bill Clinton, right? And so they were sentencing um, longer sentences for Blacks that was involved in the crack game, right? And my brother was doing more funerals than, than he could handle, right? And so... Kind of like um, it is now with COVID, right? Similar, right. like... So, so the same way it's like a COVID, where I'm playing a lot of funerals, he was playing a lot of funerals for Black-on-Black crime, right? And so I get to play at this place called Magic Factory um, with this guy named Lenny Fontana <laughs> in Switzerland. First time in Switzerland, right? And so, um, so I go out there. I said, you know what? I, 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 I go to the Winter Music Conference you know, I'm, I'm I'm hooking up with a guy named Marcus Wide from L.A. Oh, let me go back to find his picture. Wait, bring up Marcus. Right? Here we so, is. Marcus Wyatt is doing a party called "Does Your Mama Know?" Here he is. That's Marcus Wyatt from L.A. Right. So, so Marcus Wyatt. You know, I wanted to see my brother, and my brother Layton. He was he was he was going to different places in Compton. He was going all over Cali, and all Marcus did was drop me near his house. And Leighton just picked me up and scooped me, and he took me all over California. He showed me how he performed. I got to see all the boys in the hood, you know, places where, where, where you went to and all, Ingersoll and all these places. And Marcus Wyatt was the one that really helped me understand the, the difference and the fine line between deep and soulful house, because Marcus Wyatt can go deep. And it was another education for me as a DJ, because I never really came in with the with the, the the approach of being that superstar DJ. I just wanted to humble myself to learn from other DJs to be a better DJ. And that's what a real discipleship was for me, right? And so I noticed that Marcus was working a lot in LA. He was like getting all these gigs. And I said, well, Marcus, who's your booking agent? And he said, um, yeah, Ken Benjamin. Ken Benjamin is my agent. Because I was having a hard time. I was doing gigs in Japan and 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 um and I, I didn't know that I was supposed to play 10 hours. I was doing, you know, when you go to Italy, you know, a lot of times, you know, you get the flight in, 
you take the cab. They won't even like after you eat dinner, you go straight to the gig and you, they take you getting the first flight out. You know, no rest, no nothing, right? So I needed a manager to kind of navigate things for me, right? So I I um I chased, chased and begged Ken Benjamin to represent me. I said, please, 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 please like James Brown, please, 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 please <laughs> represent me. <laughs> So it comes to the point, she gives me a shot, right? So what's the first gig I do? Is in Chicago with Mystic Bill, right? Um, he does events with, like, Mystic Bill's known for doing events with Larry Heard and Green Belfin and Paul Johnson, right? So a guy comes up to me and says, yo, man, hey, your name DJ Disciple? He said, yeah, bro. I said, hey, man, you can't do no parties here under DJ Disciple. No, because the gangsters, the gangster disciples are doing a party downstairs. You cannot call yourself... DJ Disciple, you not we not having it. It's gonna be a problem up in this piece if you call yourself DJ Disciple at this party. <laughs> so, what was up happening it is the, before I could play the first record, the party gets raided because there's a fight downstairs. And so she says, "You know what? I got another gig for you, Disciple. Don't worry." And she quickly books me like like nothing. And so I go. She books me in Seattle. Right, and I, there's a venue called the Weathered Wall, and it's a place where Nirvana hung out because you know grunge is big in Seattle, right? Um, so there's a guy that promotes there. His name is Mai, Mai Picasso, right? My and Picasso. you know he loved 177 title. He, he moved to Seattle, and you know Kim started you know using DJs, right? Even though they wasn't rave DJs, he still used them, right? And so he had a crew. He had um, Darren Monroe, Mike Mercer, um, Eddie Krivlov. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm playing Seattle and I'm loving Seattle, right? And, you know, it comes to the point where Mai is doing raves in Seattle. And he does this, this gig in 96 called Ravioli, right? And Ravioli is with um, me, Victor Seminelli, Marcus Wyatt. JJ and Derek Carter, right? And then after that, he has me play with Green Velvet and Dajé for an underwater party at Catwalk. So, you know, Mai was really a pioneer and, and as well as Darren Monroe, Papa T, and, and, and Lori, um, they, they was really, you know, because if you made it in San Francisco, it was easy to go to Portland, go to Vancouver, go to Seattle. You went to, You did the whole West Coast circuit, right? if you was able to, you know, really sustain and play really well in San Francisco. Right. And so um, the first time Kim really got to see me play, she put a party together and on one level was Deep Dish, right? And Benji. And um, and at that time, she was rep- representing Moose T and, and a lot. I had gotten to work with Moose T um, because he, he was the first one to like, one of the first people to bring me to Germany. You know, Michael Suda as well. But he was one of the first one. Um, Let's see if I have the picture. There we go. Yeah, him and Boris Blugar. Boris, look at Boosie and Boris. So young. Right. And so I, I was. I had the pleasure of, of working with them out of their studio, Peppermint Park. Right? Because um, he, Moose T called me up. He was like, yo, I want you to play in Hanover. And, you know, I worked on projects. And obviously one of the projects was Keep Pushing, you know. And so that found its way to Masters at Work's label and, and, and to Manifestos, right? 
And so I was, you know, working with a good collective of, of, of people. Right. Um, and so, um, at that time I was, uh, also, you know, sound factory bar was still alive and I was, I got introduced to, um, Dawn Tolman and Dawn Tolman is this amazing, amazing vocalist, um, that I've never heard anyone like before in my life. You ever heard of Dawn Tolman, Lenny? I'm sure you've heard of Dawn Tolman, right? So we we do all this record called We Need You uh, on EP for Bobby Davis. And Frankie Knuckles starts his residency at Twilight. I'll go to the first night, and he's breaking the record Hideaway, um, which is amazing, right? And, and, you know, Frankie Knuckles breaking my record? Wow, I came a long way. I, I, I really, really am happy that he did that. So at this point, Lenny, I'm 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 getting so much music, I can't keep up. Um, I have to also go back to my journalistic skills. So I go and I start writing for Street Sound Ma- Magazine for Chris Cavella. Yep. And 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 um, about this time, you know, because I was doing so well with Alex Lowe at the time, you know, he books me for um, Southport Weekend, right? And so I'm, you know. I'm enjoying, you know, this ride, you know? Um, Paul Trouble Anderson, meanwhile, um, um, is doing his new party, The Loft, right? Paul Trouble Anderson. And so he's breaking a lot of my records, right? Uh, and I played him. And it's, it is through Paul that some of the records start really, really, you know, breaking through. It, it, it making a really, really big impact. So I'm working out of Nice and Right Studios, working with Grant Nelson. Um, we're doing a swap, right? Because I'm doing vocals for To The Bone. And then he turns around and he's doing an EP for me for Todd Terry's label, Freeze. Roger's calling me up. He wants me to do a, a, a record for his label, Narcotic, 10 Steps to Heaven. And in the 10 Steps to Heaven, um, Grant Nelson gets together with Warren Clark from ATFC. And they engineer and help me with 10 Steps to Heaven, right? Because it becomes really big in Belgium. So I got records becoming really, really big. And I'm finding some success with doing that. But I think one of the biggest success is um, when I had to, because I was playing Southport Weekend, um, I was doing all of that. But I went to a club in Sheffield called Love to Be. And I play. And I have to follow Pete Tong. Pete Tong is on the bill, and I have to follow him. Not an easy feat, but I debuted it there. And Tony Walker was like, hey, man, you did really well. You know that? Um, and he loved the way I was playing, right? And so him and JP hook up, and Tony Walker starts finding me a lot of Northern gigs with JP. JP and, and Tony, you know. And so we started doing things at Notting Hill, uh, doing Deja Vu in Hull, um, doing uh, Manchester, um, doing Newcastle, doing Bolton, right? In London, you know, Grand Nelson is introducing me to Joey Masafia. George Masafia is introducing me to Gerald Downs. Basement Jacks hits me up and they say, hey, man, we heard what you did with Grand Nelson because now Puck Trouble Anderson is breaking the record. Basement Jacks has me like do a vocal for Slide Slide, right? 
when they have their, like, you know, they got their big record, right? And we supposed to do a swap. They supposed to do a remix for me, and I'm supposed to provide vocals for them. Well, I provided the vocals for them, but the remix they did for me, well, sometimes these things don't work out. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? It's never, it's never what you put in. It's never the return is never what's put in some in a lot of those times. That's why I hate. And you know what? And that's okay because I still love those guys, right? Yeah, great so, guys. So, so, so what winds up happening is I, I start going into uncharted territory, and so I play um, uh, this this party called Abundant, and so Abundant is the first Christian nightclub in the UK. Right, the, the venue's run by a guy named Steve Baker, right, and he's a guy that realized that you know it's an op- awesome opportunity for Christian youth to get into house music, right? And I said, "Wow, I, I, all I have to do is play gospel house, yeah, inspirational." And I was taking a lot of the themes that because Naeem Johnson was really breaking a lot of gospel theme and inspirational house music at Black Box. Black mm-hmm. Box was the place where it was the Alcoholics Anonymous Club, but it was it was it broke a lot of ground for dance music and lovers, right? And so um, the follow up to Abundant was for me to play at the Green Belt Music Festival, and it was the first time I had to share uh, the bill with Moby, with uh, Kiwi Steve, and 808 State. So, meanwhile, you know, I'm getting into all these, I'm navigating through a lot of different scenes, um, but it was really Trouble's House. That really, you know, that I felt like a lot of my records were being broken. So I met, I meet this guy's name is Omar Adamira at Uptown Records. And we we both agree, hey, you know, we love Todd Edwards, we love Eddie Perez. And he's coming to see me at Trouble's house. And he's really telling me about this new scene called the UK Garage scene. Right? At the time, there was a record out because I was working with Street Sound, and right next to it, there was a label called Bold Records. And Bold Records um, had me do a, commission me to do a remix for um artist named Platonic called I'm Addicted. And they didn't like the dub that I did. But Paul Trouble Anderson was breaking the dub. And this is one of those records, because I put out a record called um, Keep On Moving for State 51 Records, right? With Pete Hurst. That kind of brought, because... That, that kind of broke, brought awareness to what I was doing for that scene. And Omar opened his eyes to it. And people like Matt Cam, Lamont, and Spoonie were playing Keep On Moving. It was a huge record. Follow that up, Platonic, I'm Addicted, it was crossing over. So Omar is really like telling me about the scene. Meanwhile, he's working with Tim Deluxe, and he's part of a group called Double 99, right? And they make that big hit, R.I.P., um, R.I.P., right? And so he's like, yo, next time you come to England, stay at my house. So I'm staying at his house at the height of his hit record. Moose T gets close with me. And he said, yo, I got this new record for you. He's like, where you at? I said, what is it called? Yes, everybody. So first UK garage gig I play, I'm playing it, breaking it in, right? So, um, the Arches was the place in, in that time and the gas club where UK Garage really, really thrived. And so because RIP was going into pop success, the record blew up. 
it was playing on the radio and so forth. I had Omar remix a record I did with Dawn called Steal Away, which was the first. I started my record label Catch Twenty Two, and that was the one of the fir- that was the first record on my label, and so um, it was that and New York City Girls. So what winds up happening is um, I meet with Omar introduces me to Matt Jam Lamont, and he picks up um, New York City Girls for 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 the UK, and so all of this is happening to me simultaneously. You know, um, Kim starts book- booking me at more places. I go to a place called Simon's Nightclub in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and she starts solidifying a lot of the American gigs. Simon's was known for rave crowds, and I was picking up the, the dancers' lovers for breakbeats. And then she had me play in another venue called Sidebar in Gainesville. And that's where I met Jack, DJ Jack. And Jack is a, as a DJ. He was the first one to bring house music to Tampa, Florida. And he mm-hmm. called it Jack's House. So all of that is going on. And then about 95, I started Cream. Really, you know, I was playing for Cream a number of times. And, um, you know, they, 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 they said, hey, listen, you want to go to Walt Disney and play with Doc Martin? It was at a rave. I said, yeah, in Florida, because I was, you know, at that time. So fast forward, later on in 95, they, they, this is their first year. They, they, they're doing parties in Ibiza. Now, I know you was one of the first person to play in Ibiza, right, Lenny? Yes, that's true. Right, and so... American, uh, not first DJ, but first American of, of the lot. I was the first American, yes. Right, right. And so it was their first year, and so the first time I play at Queen, I'm playing at Amnesia. And Chris Mella is playing with me. He's from DJ Magazine. Yes, I remember Chris. Right, so what happens is, is that David Vinson um, is a promoter that was hosting these shindig parties, right? In, in Liverpool. And he was the first promoter, Dave, David Vincent, that said, oh no, you're not paying two hours. I want six hours from you. Right, they changed the game. Right. He changed the game. Well, he's the first one, right? I need you not for two, but you got to do a full six hours. You're like, I probably, you probably said, what? Right? You were like, what? Right. And so, you know, he was running the ministry sound nights at Pasha. Right? And so, I get to play at Pasha and the venue, you know, got five rooms and, you know, I get to, you know, I'm getting to watch the the brilliance of DJ Pippi. And you know who DJ Pippi is in Ibiza. He's the man, right? We love DJ Pippi. Um, Wonderful person and fantastic DJ. So Pasha likes me and I'm playing there two to three times a year from like 96 to 2002. And I would always play at Cafe Del Mar every time I visit, you know, I visited, right? So that opened me up to the Spanish clubs that, you know, Kim was involved with. And so, I, you know, I made my debut at the Fellini in, in Barcelona. I started going to Portugal, um, started playing at Mad in Switzerland. Um, but I played with this legend called Cesar de la Mero, Melero. And he did a party called United Frequency of Dance. And Cesar's the one that really also helped break Acid House in the 80s. I met another guy named DJ Ruff, um, who played at Bora Bora in space. So I was making a lot of contributions with the music, as well as DJing for the culture on a lot of little different levels. And so, um, you know, Kim kind of tries my hand 
uh, playing at um, in Canada, right? And so previously, I went to Canada and I played at a club called um, Oz. They would do Th Thunder Goose Sundays in Canada. Um, and there's a guy named Pete, there was this group called Peter Tyrone and Shams. And they would book me on the recommendation of Roger once again to have me play out there. That's red light, but. Yeah, I know. It's Canada. Right? So, so I get to play at this club called Sona. Right. In Montreal. And I shared a, the bill with Deep Dish. But, you know, at this time, I'm playing a lot more pumping than I usually play. And so there was a, a demand to, for me to play in the main room. And so for one of the first times, I get to play with DJ Sneak from Chicago. All right, Sneak, yes. Right? That's my brother, right? Because we would meet at Winston Music Conference, right? And so they like, they really liked the set. So they brought me back again that February, and they did their first anniversary, and I played with Derek Carter, right? Come celebrate our first anniversary, blah, 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 blah. And so um, I run into this guy named Christian at the store. I go to a record store out there, and he's like, listen, I want you to play this music, and then maybe you'll, you'll save your life with this set. Um, he puts, he gives me Night Train by Kadok, um, some Jeff Mills, Cat Motor, and um, Seven Fisher had a hit record, I think it's called Check This Out, which was very popular. And I needed those records. And you know why? Because there was a DJ named DJ LaFleche, and people from Canada know this guy. He was an amazing, amazing DJ. And he inspired me so much that when, you know, Kim Benjamin started working with Ultra at the time, and I did a record dedicated to both Sona, and it was a, another club I played at called Industry in Toronto. And uh, Industry was another after-hour club. And so in the 90s, there was a lot of activities, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was loving to play, you know, places in Ottawa, um, and the West Coast kind of, those kind of raves kind of fit in um playing at the summer of love in 97 at a festival of vancouver you know and you know you had the funky green dogs and mark farina and marcus shade the mayor johnny fiasco so there was a lot of places and you know i was playing and, and traveling and a lot of it was hard to compartmentalize a lot of the different styles i'd inherited because by the time 1997 and 98 came around we was we was deep in if deeply enthralled with the sounds of DJ Sneak and Armand Van Helden and R Rhythm Masters and Robbie Rivera. You know, a lot of people were playing those kind of sounds. I don't know if you can relate to that like that, or you know that. Do you? I can understand that. Armand was big with the Sugar Sweeter and Tori Amos and don't so what happened is that house was pumping too at that time. Disco House was huge. So, yeah, so at this time, I'm like, me and Tony Walker really, really, you know, we're touring hard, and I'm playing Southport Weekender, I'm doing Bobby and Steve events, um, and the radio show is still going well. But a lot of times, I'm like, I'm so gone, I'm so far gone. Dove has the cover, DJ Dove has to cover a lot of the shows, right? Because I'm gone a lot. Um, and I start going to Switzerland. Right? And I run into a guy named Mr. Mike. Mr. Mike. Right? And he's one of the most beloved DJs in the Swiss house scene, right? And he's a brilliant MC. He knows how to lift the energy in the room. 
and so forth. And um, he's in a, he's just an amazing him and DJ Man were were the black and white brothers. And I had never signed uh, a record um, at that time. And so, um, you know, I played with him at a number of gigs in Switzerland with Mr. Mike. Um, and he really helped the development of, you know, me finding events in, in, in Switzerland. He was really amazing at it. Um, so I played at a, a French venue uh, for Swiss Color 3, um, Color 3 um, in Lafayette and Dijon, France. Um, and, you know, I was breaking the records like, you know, um, Walking on the Moon, the moon, something that Roger remixed. And it was the first time that I had heard of Harry Choo Choo Romero because he hooked up with Jose Nunez, right? Um, for for constip- Constipated Monkeys. Right. right? That was the beginning. And so that's when they first came out on Subliminal. That was and I was breaking that record in France. That was the beginning of the Subliminal sound. That was right. part of it. It was quote, so, so I'm breaking this in France. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm, when I get to France, I'm, 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 I'm meeting with DJ Gregory, right? And Gregory's showing me. So I'm getting a lot of different education. And when I get back home, you know, it was a nightmare because I got my record collection stolen. Yeah, it's <laughs> completely stolen. And, you know, you know what that's like when you get on the plane. You know, there's been a couple of times I go on the plane and a guy would, um, he would write a note in my, in, my, in, in my record box. He said, yeah, nice collection. Or you go in your record box and you see a couple of pieces missing, right? He won't take that whole collection, but he's going to slip and slide a couple. So I had to take my acetates on the plane and I had to I had that to extra baggage fee, right? Same thing I had to do. I remember we used to carry them with me wherever I went. Because you couldn't trust nobody, <laughs> right? And so, you know... Um, the Black and White Brothers record, um, Put Your Hands Up in the Air, it, it, it's, it blows up. And, put your uh, hands up in the air. Put, put your hands up in the air. In fact, it was it one of the biggest records in 1998 at that time. You know, um, and I was touring, right? A lot, right? I was doing the Transatlantic tour, right? Because me and Tony put together this 27 dates in 45 days, Right? Money I don't know if you have the fly, but, but it, was, it was the Transatlantic Mix Tour. So I'm doing that, and I'm doing um, the Maxi Tour, right? Well, I'm playing all over Chicago. I play a lot of, you know, different other venues. Um, so in the Transatlantic Mix Tour, like... This is it. Let me first see. First of all, getting to the Transatlantic Mix, it was a radio show that me and Tony came up with the concept with, right? It was on First, it was on 105, Right? And then it got his co-following, so it was Network, which means it was 105, which was Yorkshire, and then it was 102, Manchester, and then 101, which was Bristol, South Wales, and then Birmingham and the Midlands, and Galaxy Northeast. I mean, we was getting a quarter of a million listeners, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while I'm doing that, I'm also doing the Maxi Disciples House Tour. You know know what I mean? And, um, you know, because I had did a remix for Claudia Cassetta's Judy Albanese loves here at last. And Kim put together a tour. And the first kickoff of the, of the tour, I was built with um, some heavy hitters, right? I was built with um, Pete Heller, Dimitri from Paris, Josh Peterson, and Daft Punk, right? Is that the Kimco tour? Yeah, right? Okay, so it was that same year. Oh, soiree. There it is, everybody. Look at that. 
Look at that giant step endorsed Kim Co Entertainment with Maxi Records. Right. Big. And so I got to play at Red Dog in Chicago. I was playing Kick Hat events um, in, at the end up in San Francisco. Soma. Um, I was doing Jazz House. And, and so it was about 12 dates, right? And so on top of that, you know, I'm doing an Asian tour because the guy approaches me, says, hey, listen, man. You know, um, how would you like to go to Singapore? Right? Then another guy's like, he gets Kim gets another call because I'm doing a great set at the Maxi party, by the way. So I'm getting the calls to come to Asia, right? And I was wondering how, you know, how Asia was. I knew that Doc Martin went out there, you know, but I was fascinated with places like Hong Kong. And I got to play Hong Kong. Um, elevation and I'm um, backdoor rather or backstage I think in Kuala Lumpur and Singapore mm-hmm. and I played at Zook I was one of the very you know first Americans to really play at Zook um, in Singapore um, and so at that time the UK influence was like it was it was apparent you know what I'm saying and so you know because people they would like the, the people in Asia they really liked. Sasha and Digweed and Paul Oakenfold. Well, because of the trance sound that was big for them. They understood it better. And so that, yeah, so that's those special nights would draw a lot for the Asian clubs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a guy named Lincoln Chang who got a taste of the Paradise Garage. And then another guy that booked me in Hong Kong, he was part of the whole San Francisco scene. But you had Ministry of Sound and Cream parties in Singapore, right? Yes. And and so, you know, because vinyl shops was rare in, in Asia, you know? But the, the 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 once again, the Asian DJs in that area, they were up on their music, man. You couldn't sleep. So obviously during all of that time, you know, Black and White Brothers is blowing up. And I unfortunately, you know, we we had a disagreement, a contractual disagreement. Um and we settled it. So um, but it wasn't, this, the relationship was kind of fractured at that point, you know? Um, I, I needed to learn some things and I was schooled and I didn't, I didn't take it as a loss. I took it as a lesson because I needed to be schooled on how contra- contractual agreements really work. I was schooled by Matthew Clutter, um, who was also Green Velvet's um, lawyer at the time. And I really got educated on, you know, how labels work, what the terms mean um, at that time. And so um, we we settled it in, in in time, and I was able to reach out to Mr. Mike, and you know we was able to squash this thing, and we're, we're friends now. But you're always gonna find in most most um, when you're working with companies that there's gonna be some disagreements. You're not gonna eye to eye on everything, and you, you're gonna have those kind of things. You're gonna have some breakdowns. And I found out early in my career that I made a lot of mistakes um, with Tech Twenty Two recordings. Um, so I, I, I made a lot of rap bad moves. And at this time I was working on my album. The album was called My True Colors, right? And one of the first people I was working with was Joey Cardwell. Um, Joey Cardwell is known for Club Lonely, Lil Lewis, and she's an amazing singer. And I did a remix for her called Soul the Bear. And so she and I collaborated on a collaboration agreement with Wannabe. Um, and I got Shaka Khan's sister, Taka Boom, to sing it. And the Black Lives was by Helen Bruna and Terry Jones. 
Nice. Um, at the time, um, I think uh, Keith KCC was telling me about this guy named Jeremy Sylvester. And Jeremy had like three top 20 singles. He sold four million records. And he was another huge part of the UK garage scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put out a track called Desire on the X Factor 7. And it, it laid the future groundwork, you know? So on the album, I had Angie Johnson and Mia Cox. I worked with Anaya Day, um, uh, the Rhythm Masters, and Robbie Rivera. Um, and so um, I worked with Mia Cox and obviously Jeremy Sylvester, and I collaborated on a song called Caught Up, um, which two years later went number one on the Billboard dance charts um, because of Guido Rosario's to remix once it got signed to Groovalicious. So I, I owe Groovalicious a lot of thanks um, because, you know, that record, you know, I got a, a letter from contact artists saying that Caught Up had, had made it from through the first round um, level of the Grammy nominations. Um, and I didn't care if I won the Grammy. I just cared that I was considered, you know, um, yeah. that, that it was considered. Um, and, you know, the caught up wound up being on the HBO series Queer as Folk, and a lot of it had to do with um, Guido Osario. So I'm grateful for him. Um, when we can, may, he, may he rest in peace too. May he rest in peace. He was amazing for his for that scene, right? That Junior Vasquez, Jonathan, Danny Tanikanegla, they were playing his records at that time heavily. And so, um, like I said before, Warren Clark introduced to me to Michaela Shiverini. Mm. And Michele, um was another amazing keyboardist, right? I had to work with this guy. He was Joey Negro's keyboardist. Um, anything he touched to me turned to gold. And I knew that the, the, the style of music I was doing was tougher, you know, at that time, right? Because you were seeing a lot more European influences in house music that more than American um, at this time. And, work, and working in the album, he introduced me to a girl, a woman named Gita De Palma, right? And we work on this call, it's a song called The Brazilian Affair. So I do my tour, you know, and I'm loving The Brazilian Affair. I'm ready to put it out in the album. And I have the acapellas, and I cry. You know why I'm crying, Nutty? Because I put the that tape in the that machine, and it ate it. And it ate it like oh, the, no. it ate it. I said, "Oh no, oh no, I'll never be the same." Okay, you never get it back. back. So I said, "Listen, I talked to the engineer. Series. Do you have the vocals? Of course, he doesn't have the vocals. Of course, he doesn't have the vocals." It, it made me mad. It made me so, so, so mad. And so I had to deal with that, man. Can you imagine taking a loss like that? Um, I think I've been talking for a little while, so um Go ahead. No um, so so I just want to get a grab of water. Let me get a bottle. Yeah, get some water. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today while he's telling us his story. Don't forget, make sure you please share this show. Hit the GoFundMe. Come on now. Give it up. Let's Ooh, try. There's a couple of people still watching. <laughs> oh my God! There's plenty of people still watching. You kidding? They're right. They're writing like crazy. Everybody's <laughs> writing. Go ahead. So okay, and 
So oh, I'm I'm doing all this touring, but I'm not really in, in, encroached in the New York scene, right? I'm a New York DJ, but I have a global sound. And at that point, wait a minute, hang on a second. At that point, you didn't have that New York sound anymore. You had more of what was going on globally, because right. I remember that. Right. And so, so what winds up happening is um, a guy named Francois Edmond gets um, Roger Sanchez, me, and DJ Dove to participate in the first bottle service party in New York City called Spy Bar. Right? Um, so Spy Bar was the first um, venue um, that was operated with uh, Michael Alt at the time, who was at the time part of the tunnel back in the days. And so um, it was unusual for me in that sense that, you know, my brother came again. He's going to take another crack at the barrel. Come see me. Uh, and they tell him, they give him a hard time at the door. Right? I said, why you give my brother a hard time at the door? Right? And so he comes in and they said, uh, you can't sit there. It's a $500 seat. My brother's like, what? <laughs> so once again, I missed that opportunity for my brother to come in because he's out of there, right? He's out. He's 86 and out. He's, 86, he's not coming in there. Ah. Right? So for me, like, you know, um, working in a bottle set, once I work at Spy Bar, I never stopped working in that scene until 2017. But hang on, brother. Before we even go there, I remember back in 02, something happened big to you that changed you. I don't know if it changed me for the better, but we're going to get there. Okay. But what, what wound up happening, what, what, let's just break it down. I went from Spy Bar, then me and Dove worked at Pangea, where Mick Nicholas, Nicholas who, who owned Cielo, Right, first started. Yeah, that's where I met first met Nicholas. Nicholas. Yeah, Nicholas. From, Nicholas Matar from Pangea. I go to rehab and I'm working with Walter Quick Kim. He's not talking about rehab for drugs. He's playing at a place called Rehab. Oh, I get twisted. Right. And then I go uh, 20, 20, 20 in the lower 20s. I work with Walter Kim and Gil Traub at Quo. Right. This is 2000, 2004, 2005. Then I work at Kane. Right with Jamie um, Cardoso and Jamie Mulholland, right? And they take me to the Versace Mansion, right? I work with Made in Italy in the Hamptons. We go to Air unless on 14th Street. Um, I do Pink Elephant with Marco Peruzzi and Vanji and DJ Amadeus. I do Guest House in late 2007, 2008. Me and Doug do the grand opening of Greenhouse, right? We're not even talking about Lasuk, which I started in 2005, that I never stopped working for until like 2018. And then I did a club in Baroque Queens. So, yeah, I never stopped working in a bottle service scene. I worked all of those years doing that. And, um, you know, a lot of people was disenchanted by it, right? Because it was a, working at the bottle service for me was a good way to stay current if I wasn't traveling, right? I could I could expose the best music at the scene. I could have an edge, right? Um, I know I couldn't trust the promoters, but you know because one moment they want a DJ and they want to be a resident, and then the next thing you know they fire you. You know, you know what I'm saying? No reasoning, no notice. You know, so it wasn't a fair game. You got what you got, and and um, 
some of the promoters wanted to create a European experience, like similar to Ibiza. So because I've been playing and Roger, I was playing, a lot, a lot of clubs, they haven't seen that sound. There wasn't a lot of New York, New York DJs playing that sound. And so with, with, with working at the Bottle Service Club, when you dealt with the promoters, you knew that there was too many cooks in the kitchen, right? That was one of the problems of playing at those places, right? And so um, Francois always hooked me up with exclusive clubs, with me and Dove. But a lot of those records were broken. You know, you think about um, Boris Lugos, Sing It Back, or Milk and Sugar, Lo- uh, or Love Is In The Air, um, Let The Sun Shine. You know, all the stuff that was big in Ibiza. Well, the bottle service, played, bottle service parties. Right. Eric Prince, Call On Me, Feel The Vibe, those commercial records, the, the Love Generation and all of that, right? All that Daft Punk. Because what happens is, is that that whole Bob Sinclair, Daft Punk, David Guetta, you know, all of that helped bridge the gap between that scene and the EDM scene, right? That helped bridge the gap between those scenes, right? So you had those kind of parties. So, you and you're thinking about, like, you know, those records like, you know, Roger S. got his hit with, with Another Chance. You got My, 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 Armin Van Alden. You got The Flash Dance by Deep Dish, right? Um, Tim Deluxe, It Won't Do. He, he, you had a lot of records there, right? And so at that time, some of the people I was rolling with at that time, they was like, yo, this is a racist place you, you're taking me to right here, you know? And <laughs> it's like, yo, why did I let no black people in here? What's happening, right? You notice, <laughs> but you got to understand something, everyone. It had a bit of no color, just one way. It was very white. Right, so it was very whitewashing, right? <laughs> right, so and that's so, not the kind of party I like to go to because that to me is not the kind of party I party at. But I understand why you go because the money's there. Well, not so much that, right? It was more a lot of entry. Like, okay, for instance, like say for instance, there was like no, there was no loyalty with the promoters, right? Because if a DJ came and he brought thirty people with him, and they brought like X amount of money worth of liquor. That's right. He could be the worst DJ in the world. He, he's the man. He's the man for that night. The I fall into those situations, but those I, are the kind of things that happen, right? This is your last evening. Thank you. <laughs> right, right, but I was able to survive a lot of it. So you had that end of the spectrum where I was involved and engaged in doing that. And then there was another spectrum, which was Great British House, right? And yeah. so the story yeah. of Great British House is when like uh, uh, Alejandro Tutorio and Thomas Dunkley they joined vo- forces and they was throwing parties at a, a place on Twenty Third Street between um Sixty Seventh Avenue called Vanity, and this guy named Anthony Macaroni who was um he was he used to promote um do the King director of promotions for King Street Records in Manhattan. Yes, I remember him. Right, and he convinced um Dunkley and Torrio to get me in with GBH, and so once. You know, Anthony did his thing. He did he, he threw the ball. I mean, I took it and ran with it. And um, you know, because Anthony Mack and I go back since like the city garden parties, right? In Trenton, New Jersey. He had a party called Bounce, right? And he was partnered with another DJ called DJ Roma. Right? And so that party got big and it outgrew them, right? And then they moved to my old sound stopping ground, Sound Factory Bar. And it was called the Cheetah. That's right. right. And this is where Frankie Knuckles played, right? And it was the hottest party in New York. And so instead of Camacho playing downstairs, 
You got Frank DeLore. He's playing um, hip-hop and reggae. But upstairs, you know, I'm playing house with Roma and with Anthony Macaroni. Mm-hmm. And so it, Tom came up to me and said, listen, you got two choices. You could do a couple of guest spots and get a lot of money, or you could be my resident DJ and, stay and play with me every month, twice a month, regularly, right? And so I went with the second option because at the, at the end, it's not about the money, right? So on top of that, now I got a regular gig in New York City, right? And so you know how they build me? They built me as Ministry of Sounds DJ Disciple, <laughs> right? So on one hand, in the early 90s now, they calling me Disciple from the Shelter, Disciple from Zanzibar. Now I'm Ministry of Sounds Disciple. See how things change? So what wound up happening is, is that what wound up happening, I used um, the GBH in one way um, because Tom gave me the freedom to, to have whoever I want play with him. And Robbie Rivera, I was working with at that time. Right? This is 99. Right? And um, I said, I want Robbie Rivera because we did this record called Trouble and Bass and Carl, it appeared on Carl Cox's record thanks to a man named um, Willie San Juan who I met um, in the Winter Music Conference as well. And Willie, Willie, Willie San Juan is like my brother. You know, we, we, we... Good people, good people. people. Good people, right? And so I invite him, and then I invite um, Tony Walker, right? Because we're doing a transatlantic mix, and I want Tony to be a part of that. And then lastly, I, I, I you know, just uh, one of the few is Bobby and Steve. And when Bobby and Steve came... They brought a, like, a crowd of like 40,000 people. And I was kind of embarrassed because when I bought them, they was like kind of shocked about the whole um, Abner Luila, Luima, Diallo, how many, yeah, the Diallo situation, right? Right, of the, of the 41 shots of, you know, Diallo. And that, that caused the city to uproar. Um, but they, they took to the decks and they rocked GBH. Bobby and Steve, they were they never played in New York before. And I was the first one to have them. But it was the ultimate thank you for saying thank you for booking me and trusting in me and being one of the first ones to book me in London. I was always grateful. So then after that, Carl Kennedy came in. He's a handsome English guy. He's making all the top models drool. That's you know, right. He looked great. You know what I'm saying? And so um, at Central Fly, was, it was fun because... What happened was we moved to, he was the one that, him and Thomas and Anthony, they was the one that, when, when obviously the, the party outgrew Cheetah, we went to Central Fly. Central Fly, it was great because I got to play with Donald Claude, Claude, I played with Derek Carter, I played with Tony Humphreys, I played with Sneak again, but it wasn't the biggest moment for me because um, the biggest moment is when my dad had some medical issues at that time. And um, at that time, I didn't want to live anywhere else. I just wanted to be with my dad. Um, he was dealing with some med- medical issues, and he never saw me play f- before. He never heard me play. And I said, um, you know, Tom and all of them, they was like, oh, you want to sit in the VIP? You want to sit in the VIP? And he said, nah, man. I want to I wanna go up to that DJ booth, and I want to go right in the front, right in that DJ booth where my son is playing, and I want to watch him. And so I'm playing the music and my dad is watching me play that music. Wow. The best set 
in my life. In my life. No? I mean, it touched me because my dad never saw me. That's when you validate. That's when you validate it. That's and he felt like, you know, those times that he put me in college and it didn't work out, or he didn't know that what he invested in his son was a crap shooting out. You know, house music brought that together for me. And so, um, you know, I, I owe Thomas and a lot of the guys from GBH a lot of thanks for that party alone. And so, um, one of the things that happens is that I continue touring, right? And so after street, after working for Street Sound, I, I wind up writing for Mixer Magazine, right? In 1999 with Darren, right? Darren Wrestler. And so the magazine loved the Transatlantic Mix. And um, him and Darren, they collaborated on this tour called Thank God It's Mixer. And I'm, you know, I'm writing about all the places that I'm, I'm touring at and stuff like that. I'm playing at, you know, and I'm breaking ground because I'm one of the very few DJs play in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you know? Um, I'm I'm actually becoming great friends with Beirut for playing at release in San Francisco. But it was really at Detroit Techno Club Motor Lounge that I really, really got an understanding of house music in a different kind of way works for me. Um, I was doing um, them one night and they decided to say, hey, listen, we want you to be a bi-monthly resident in Detroit. And so I got to play with the first lady of wax, um, DJ Minx. Um, and you know, women were always making great strides in the, in the music industry, but I never met a, a, a DJ that had her own DJ company like Minx. You know, uh, we, we, we became great friends and she supported me a lot. And she's the one that turned me on to Mike Huggerby when he ran record time records. And I just talk about talk for hours about how Mike Huggerby educated and helped so many people in his scene. Mike Huggerby was so important, and a lot of people in Detroit don't get enough credit for their contributions for house music. Um, and then I ran into a guy named um, Mike Agent X Clark, um, and so he was also uh, Motors resident DJ, right? Um, Mike was, he, 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 he was the one that founded Beatdown Recordings and he ran with Dane Jensen and Keith Worthy, right? And he sat on the board of, and, and helped out um, a lot with the D Detroit Electronic Music Festival. He was on the original board. So, you know, from what I'm told. And, you know, playing in Detroit, you got this very raw, distinctive sound, you know? It was raw. Um, it, but it was beautiful, right? And I loved it. And so, um, you know, starting to, to, you know, working into 2001 and working in all these scenes, um, I didn't want to lose that desire for Soulful House. And that's why, you know, I worked with McKaylee and I worked with Gerald Elms, who, you know, was responsible for, you know, some of the other records that I've done, mm -hmm. right? Gerald Elms, I got record to mended by from, from, from Roger Sanchez and, um, we did a number of remixes and, and works together. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I, I always stay grounded no matter how, you know, if I made pumping music or whatever, I always tried to stay grounded. And one of the people I stayed grounded with was our friend, Tommy Musto. Yeah. Who I met through Victor Speminelli. Right. And I got with him 
And he said, hey, listen, I want you to do a remix for Federal Hill. There's got to be a way. And so, you know, following that, I, you know, I did a, I guess I would say a selections tour to promote Northcott selections tour. And so um, it was 18 territory tour. Um, I went to Belgium and Germany, all across Canada, Calgary, you know, and I was going over to the UK so much that people actually thought I was British, you know? They thought I was British because I was going on. But that, that year, you know, I was working closely with Willie San Juan. He released the um, Russian EP. And in turn, you know, he hooked me up with a residency at Torres Diablas in, ba- in, in Barcelona. I was doing, um, do, during that tour, I was, I was also playing in Dallas, Texas. Um, and I was DJing with a guy named DJ Renna, Scotty Canfield. And so, Working with all of these different elements, um, I had to really stay on point, right? But Gerald Elms, um, he kind of kept it tight for me on a on the production, and we did a remix on a record called "Bases Got Me Moving." It was um, a, a track by Love Tattoo, and it was able to like go hit the f- hit number fifty six in the Australian charts. And that, the success of that it helped me do my first um, Australian tour. I played at Fabric in Melbourne. In my bar in Perth, um, family in Sydney in 2001, and um, there was this record called "Here Comes the Morning," um, uh, that Helen Bruner and Terry Jones collaborated with me and and, and Gerald on, and it would wound up being in a, in a movie called "The Score" with Robert De Niro and Al- a- Angela Bassett and Marlon Brando, and so. You know, that that shared moment that my mom took me to, my mom took me to the movies to see, you know, the greatest. And at the end, she saw those credits, you know, with, with the George Benson and, and my brother's name. And that's how I felt when I when I when I took my dad to see, you know, the score, to see my name credited in, in an actual movie. You know what I mean? Right. And so that 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 was uh Am I going too far? Because it's almost three hours. I'm like, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> um, is there, is there is there anything you want to ask me? Is there anything? I'm waiting to hear the part with the with the changing life experience moment. Because I know we're getting to that with the jet and everything. Okay, okay. Well, um because that's a big thing that changes a lot of things. Right. So 2002, right? Um, you know, clubs was turning away from Soulful House for the most part. And, you know, that transition came with the cancellation of the transatlantic mix because the trans scene was taking off um, and a lot of a lot of shows were being canceled. Danny Ramblin, a lot of people. Um, JP, you know, he got bored with the tour management side and he started working with um, Keisha White and then he started working with Black Eyed Peas and then he, he started, he goes on the tour and he's working with Rihanna, Lady Gaga. I think he's working with Drake right now. So, you know, um, JP starts taking it to another level of where he's where he's able to do what he's doing, you know? And so um, I'm not lost because I'm discovering um, new avenues and new venues to play at. And um, I'm reminded in my head that... Sometimes you don't retire from DJing. Sometimes DJing can retire you. And you can play, but you could also play yourself out, right? And I had to maintain humbleness. Um, part of that humbleness came 
when I was working with Milk and Two Sugars, right? I was working with Sharon um, Alcabas and David Alcabas and Tim Burnett. And I did their first record, Milk, Milk for Milk and Two Sugars, for, called Things We Used to Do. It was their first release, and it was was big in the San Francisco market because I was working with Mark. Um, it was big with Mark Farino because he was breaking the record. Um, and so one day for their eighth anniversary, um, Junior Jack, who was really hot at that time, he couldn't make the gig. And I played at the end. Um, and that experience, playing with Robert Owens and playing with Kerry Chandler, those experiences helped inspire me. Like, even when I feel like my run is over, to give up, to still try something new. And so one of the things I tried to do that was new is I worked with Lady Bunny. And Lady Bunny um, had, was doing movies like Sex in the City Part 2. She appeared on v- VH1. And, you know, but more than a celebrity, I was, I was really into her songwriter. She could really write books. And we did a record in a collaboration called I Get High. Um, Lady Bunny uh, was captivating, right? and you know, um, it was my obligation to really, really try to make the, the best out of it. And I didn't think I could do it. So I, I brought around this guy, this group, this duo called Hard Soul with Rogue. You know about Hard Soul. Sure I do. So Hard Soul just does this amazing mix. And I start really getting to understand like a little bit about the Dutch scene. Because at this time, I'm going to Greece. I'm going to Russia. I'm going to Poland and I'm flying all over the place, right? I'm doing, because at this time, um, Lynn Crosgrove is um, having, doing this site called Trusted DJ, right? Mm-hmm. TrustedDJ.com. And at this, during this tour, I'm covering 150 clubs around the world, okay? Everywhere. So I'm flying this way. You know, I'm playing for 20,000 strong at the Elevation Festival. I'm playing in Paris. I'm playing in Notting Hill Carnival, London. And, I, you know, I, I hook up with Craig Bartlett to the, do the amazing club, um, La America, yeah, right? Man. Cambridge. I mean, La America in Cardiff, I'm sorry, right? Still doing Deja Vu and Hold, still playing it to the Man of Born, playing Japan at the Geha, right? Brussels. And so it's money pennies. I do a chuff chuff party with, for them, right? And um, I'm doing this chuff chuff party, and they say, "Hey, you want to go out to Marbella? You want to go to Ibiza?" I say, "Yeah, sure." And at this time, I, I come up with this rebrand called Nympho Sounds, um, and I come up with Odyssey of a Broken World, and I start doing records like Fantasy Reality. These records were a little bit harder, but they're embraced by Seb Fontaine and Lottie and Pete Tong. And one week, it becomes tune of the week. And so what winds up happening is um, I uh, get on this flight to go to Marbella to see uh, about this gig. And um, the flight takes off and it um, catches on fire. And um, we're going to crash. We're crashing. Uh, this, is, this is the end of Disciple. I'm about to lose my life. Uh, What's going through your mind? How, what, what, what was it? Recreate. Tell us how far were you into the flight? What, what exactly happened? The flight caught on fire. You just take off or you're in the air for a while? Well, in the air, it's going down, though. And it's not looking good. 
it's not. And uh, it was hard. It was it was it was tough for me. Um, I don't know that I felt any other way, but to go back to pray to God. That's all I can do at that time was just go back to the Lord and hey God, can you get me out of this? He said, I never left you. I came looking for you. I ain't never left you. And I started to take, you know, to heart the name DJ Disciple. Yeah, only what you do for Christ shall last. And you need to remember that when you get into a jam. You know, sometimes you get put in that situation of, you know, reflecting that at any point, taking these flights or whatever you do, your life is not promised to you. You can be gone at any moment. Right. And so that's that's kind of my wake up call. Um, you know, and I'm I'm still playing in the scene, but I I'll never forget what what God has brought me from at that time um, of almost dying in, you know, on an airplane um, and having almost to crash. Um, And so uh, I had to deal, Lenny. I had to deal. Um, So um, there was a lot of changes that happened during that time. Um, But that was the wake-up call. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things in my career that I skipped in talking to you. You know, you're writing a book too, you, and that'll be in the book. But you covered a lot. Let me ask you. Let me ask you about the the plane, the plane going down. What was the end result of that plane? Were they able to land? Of course, you're alive. We know that. Right. How bad was the accident that happened? Well, um, the the it felt like it crashed because the door came wide open. And people were hurt and hospitalized and so forth. So there was definitely, uh, at the very least, it was a harder landing than usual. But I felt like it was a crash. And the way it landed made me feel like, this is it. You, you're done. You're cooked. <laughs> end of, end of story. I think we can end the book right. We can end the, we can end the interview right here. <laughs> right? And so, um, it had helped me to understand that I, I had not been maintaining my faith. I had not been praying and doing the essential things I need to do. It's not so much that, that, that house music, like I said, house music is morally neutral, but I still had to have, come up with the, the right decisions and the, and the, and the, the right choices, right? And so um, you can't go by how you feel a lot of times. You got to let the word of God flow through you and, you know, and I've really felt like, hey, you know, um, just because you maintain your faith um, yesterday doesn't mean that you're going to maintain it today. And I have to really examine myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if it doesn't touch your hand. You can't, you know, so, you know, you, you, I had to get my mind off the problem and get my mind on, on God and realize that, you know, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is when you have balance and harmony. And so it's not gonna that you're not gonna have problems. We all have them. Um, but I, I just realized, you know, 
peace is not the right step. Mental state is not, you know, it's not the right circumstances all the time. But, you know, I, I realized that God gives me the peace of all understanding. And, you know, the path to peace, peace for me was prayer. And I didn't do enough of that. And I shouldn't have to wait f- to get to God to look to, to, for the plane to crash, to almost crash, for me to understand the value of prayer. And so I had gotten away from that. And so, you know, um, I was able to go to Marbella in the end, and I was able to play um, at Miss Money Pennies, but that did change a lot of things in me. Um, and so, can you, sum that up? can you sum that up? Because you know we're a long time in; people getting getting late now. But right. so basically, I just knew I just knew I just needed to, to draw nearer to God, and that's what that taught me. But it also taught me to like really think things through and value my life a little bit more. You know, I wasn't perfect in my life. I like I made a lot of mistakes. Nobody is, brother. Nobody yeah. is. But and so, sometimes events like that are the reason we make drastic changes for events that happen like that. Mm-hmm. And circumstances so, um, do that. You know, circumstances will make you change. Right. And so I do a residency at Red Life for two years after I was placed. 3,000 people after I was goes well. But... Part of me felt like, you know, you need to come home, disciple. You know, I'm doing great at Red um, Red Light because it's an after-hours residency. Yeah, but disciple, no joke, brother. Were you scared out of your mind to get back on a plane after that? Because I was... No, because I I didn't have no fear of that at that point because I I trusted in God, right? And so I was... Because I trusted... on the wings of the Lord. Right. So what winds up happening is, I mean, I go back to Camacho, right? And Camacho's at Frank's Lounge, <laughs> right? And at this, and at this time, we're working. We're still working DJs, right? And I wanted to get back to the place where dancers really enjoyed dancing to the music. And Camacho was like, he knew I was playing the toughest stuff, but he said, "Listen, come back home." And I took his advice, and I came back home. Um, and I started this party in at Frank's Lounge called the Next Level Party, and so. Um, the first party I did with Frank's at Frank's Lounge was really successful. And I started inviting DJs like Ruben Toro, Cameron, the DJ, Augie J, Herb Martin, you know, Juwan D. Bali and Troy O, uh, Ray Vasquez, DJ S and Ceres. Um, I worked with, uh, Rich Medina. And then, you know, obviously I worked with, with the Martinez brothers, um, at that party. Um, so, um, so young back then. Look how young everybody was. Yeah. So Babies. you know, I know that we've been on, we've been talking for three hours, but there's a lot of content in here, isn't it? There's a no, lot. No, um, it's real. It's real. And so, and so, while I was doing the next level party, I was doing show, show, um, poetry showcases with it to mix it up, right? So I was working with Ross Baraka. I was working with the last poets, um, Ovius Maximus, Wumi, Amber Daniels, and Keisha Tori. And Keisha Tori is the person that introduced me to Ray, Reggie, a guy named Reggie Mason, who worked with Def Jam Poets, because they used to have a series on uh, HBO called Def Jam Poetry. So I started working with a lot of poets from there. And I worked, I hooked up with this guy, Eric Blackwell, and he said, hey, man, I think you're doing a good thing representing Fort Greene. And so I said, hey, listen, let's do a thing where we can really give back to the community. 
And that's when we came up with DJs Against Hunger. And what DJ Against Hunger is, is what we're able to do is, on every Thanksgiving, we go and we feed the homeless from canned goods, from perishable goods, or goods that we know that people need because there's a lot of people that's hungry, that's mm-hmm. starving. And, you know, we, we, me and Eric Blackwell, we did that. We did it for 10 years. And we had, like, DJs like Jihad Muhammad, um, Lil Ray. Um, we had, like, a lot of heavy hitters. So I was doing the next level, and I was doing that, but I felt like I still needed to do events in Manhattan. Now, mind you, I'm doing parties like Masook. I'm still doing the bottle show. I'm doing all these parties, but I felt like I needed to do something that was really, truly underground. And so I, I hook up with this guy, Christopher Robinson, a.k.a. Father Chris. And Father Chris was instrumental in helping me book talent like DJ Merritt. Um, I got to play with Tony Humphreys again, Jellybean Benitez, Kenny Dope, Mr. V, you know. And so, um, and it was at Sapphire Lounge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from that, I was starting to become less traveling, more homegrown, right? And I started doing like, um, stuff in the, at, at Coney Island Park. And at Coney Island Park, I would hook up with Curvin Mark, DJ Irv, um, and I would do these parties at Coney Island because of Reekin and the dances. Crazy Reekin, yep, and all the dances. So, so, so I was doing all these Coney Island parties, playing with Ruben Toll. Um, it was a revolution in 2008 for those DJs, right? And so, um, but obviously, I was back and forth, right? Because I wanted to still reinvent myself. <laughs> um, I was getting, I was still working in the UK. I could still go to Love Zoo and Notting Hill. I could still go to, to um, Thompson's in Belfast. Um, I was still, you know, working with Alex Lowe. Um, I was working a lot of those places. But um, I felt like I really, really needed to, to, to work, you know, somewhere. And so... My brother passed away in 2004, Leighton Banks. He passed. But Ruff, a guy named DJ Ruff, who I met in Spain, he's like, yo, you should come over to LA. And I said, uh, every time I try to get out, they try to drag me back in. And he introduces me to a man named David Tort. And from David Tort, I was able to collaborate, work, work on next level hits, um, which was putting me in the EDM bracket, which was Work It Out, which... Um, goes to straight to Pete Tong's playlist. And as a matter of fact, that went to music conference, I'm playing with Pete for the BBC Radio One pool party, right? So I'm playing, and everybody's playing, work it out. And it, and it gets signed. Um, it, get, it gets on a lot of compilations, and it gets picked up by House Train Records, right? Get got Gilbert LaFunk to do the remix. Um, and so I own... Ruff and Tor, David Tor and Ruff and Gilbert LaFunk, a lot of credit for that record because with David Tor, I was doing a swap because I did something for him and he did something for me. And at that case, in this case, it was like, you know, they wasn't unknown, but they knew that I had a bigger name that helped propel them, but that helped keep me relevant. So it was like a win-win situation. And so I'm seeing um, Danny, Danny, T- Danny Tenaglia He's playing like records like um, Crossroads um, and Deep Underground. Um, and then, you know, er- everybody from Roger Sanchez to everybody else is playing this record Changes that blows up. 
Um, we do destination. So it's it's it it, it gets back to me understanding and I, and understanding. I'm 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 exchanging music with three guys: um, Ruff, Baggy Begovich, and and Gogos. And Baggy Begovich is the guy that you know he wanted to help um, expose me to the Dutch scene, right? And so Baggy Begovich is a guy that he's from Bosnia. When the war broke out, you know, his father gets killed. He comes to the Netherlands and, you know, me and him are in touch and he's doing these parties with this guy named Eric E. And he invites me out to play in, 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 um, in Rotterdam and Amsterdam. And so Amsterdam is really where I understand how the whole festival game works, right? Because they were organized. You had Greg Salter, Brian Dalton, Lucian Ford, Bart B, you know, and yep. Baggy Begovich was introducing me to that. Right. And so, you know, being a part of that, that helped me see how it, it all worked out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so working with Willie San Juan, I was inspired by him because he worked with a lot of artists in Colombia. And so what wound up happening is I started going to uncharted territory, started doing 30,000 um, this place and that place, going to... Um, Korea, right? I did Sneaker Festival, um, the Iniesta Festival. Um, and then I'll get to work with the UK's Golden Charm, Proc and Fitch. And it felt like it, it's, it feels like the story's never ending, but it's ending, Lenny. I promise you, it's, it's ending. <laughs> okay. So, you know, while I'm doing these next level parties, I'm also balancing the two. Um, McKamey helped me out. But the, ne- the, the next level parties kind of kept me rooted. And it kind of came a point in time where in, you know, um, 2010, 2011, I had my daughter. And I'm, I'll never forget you see, saying this. He said, yeah, it's like, I see you touring, but then I can see you with your daughter. What happened? You stopped traveling? <laughs> and I did. I did. I did the last Notting Hill Carnival, 2010 for KCC. I did Scholar for Bobby and Steve. Um, and I didn't want to uh, be on a road and not have my daughter raised. And to me, that was the most important thing for me is to make sure that I'm a family man first and I took care of business at home. All you, right. you know, you get married, you get divorced. But because, you know, I'm with my daughter most of the time and, you know, that whole situation, I'm grateful to. Um, do to be the father that I could be, and then what wound up happening is is that I came back to the church and I got closer to the Lord again, and I, you know, I I, I rededicated myself to the Lord in a way where I could be active and, and functional in the ministry, and that's why you know the guy Rusty Taylor who had those battles who played with Shannon, he played the bass with Shannon. He's the bass player for the choir I play for now. Um, Tanya Wynn had also sung with Larry um, because at that time um, I came to an apartment in, uh, I guess, 2012, 2013, and my brother was dying. Larry, he was on the floor. He was out. He was dying. He had gone into a diabetic coma. And um, we thought we was going to lose him, brain damage. We thought we was going to lose him. But he got pulled out of it. And he made it. Um, there was a time where I thought I had to give up my kidney for him. Um, 
and I didn't have to. There was a kidney donor. And now he does a Facebook live session and I put together YouTube videos for him. Um, I write stuff with him um, because I knew that life is precious and it was important for me to connect with my brother in such a way. And so I'm happy, like, if, if I'm not traveling anymore or if I'm, you know, if the demand is not there, I'm, I'm good with it because I understand that only what you do for Christ shall last. And I'm good, like, you know, if I play good, a certain, I'm still a working DJ. You know, I, I DJ. Work in New York, you're working heavy. You I'm, I'm still working heavy. Even before the virus, I was working through the coronavirus because I was working in the bakery industry. So I'm, I was working, and I'm grateful, but I also understood what was important to my life. And I was grateful for, you know, all the people that had supported me through the years. And I think that during the coronavirus, I put out more music than I ever did before. I worked with new artists like Demarcus Lewis and Steve Miggity Maestro, um, Tom Chubb from the UK. Um, I worked with a lot of lot of fascinating new artists. I just wanted to do something that I knew that would make my daughter proud and persevere and do my passion in this music. And so I was grateful for all the experiences that I had. Even if I, if I never played in the UK again, if I never played in Canada again, I'm still going to make my contribution to dance music. I don't care. I didn't get into it for fame. I get it. I gave into it because I loved it. And I know that sometimes DJ can retire you, but I'm not retired yet, and I'm grateful. All right, he's not retired. <laughs> well, now I'm retired for a little bit from traveling, but I no, know that you know that's because I'm taking care of business at home. Sure. Because of family commitments, it's understandable. But you know what? She's going to get older. You'll get back on the road again. You'll get that bug again. I know. I know people are tired of me right now. <laughs> but Disciple, you, your story is amazing. And you're writing a book. And you're still writing a book. And this, there'll be even probably more in the book, of course. Yeah, there's a lot of history. Story, bro. It's huge. Huge story. Tired of, yeah. It's a long story, man. People loved it. They loved it. They were they were just saying, "What a wonderful story of your life." Thank you, DJ Disciple. You're welcome, man. Spending your time with us. I mean, it was incredible, brother. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry if I forgot anybody. I know I missed a lot of stuff. I know I missed. But it'll be in the book. Yeah. When is this book, uh, so just to wrap up, when is this book? Is it in motion? What's the deal with? Yeah, this? it's most it's moving. But I mean, I just think that you know. You want to? You, I'm, I'm telling the scene in a different way, obviously, but I think people get the gist of, you know, the history of DJ Disciple, you know, and it's more than just playing for one scene. Yeah, you've been in so many microcosm scenes that broke off to other scenes. Crazy. Some scenes that obviously we didn't even talk about. Yeah, for good reason. <laughs> we'll leave it. We'll leave it to the good stuff. Leave it, yeah. It's an experience, brother. I know this guy has worked harder than many, many people I know. He's been all over the... Like I told you from in the beginning of the show, from concert to concert, strength to strength, he didn't stop. It was like a machine. He would just go. So get the book. Rich Lamont saying, get the book. Get oh, also, you know, I, I got stuff on track source now. Hey, you know. They know. They know. Yeah. You people wrote, they're buying it. They're saying your records are as good as your old records. So yeah. that's a compliment. It's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Disciple. Thank you so much, brother, man. We love you, bro. Love you too, man. We'll talk to you soon. And and remember, next week, Alex Lowe, Southport Weekender. We're going to get a whole other story now of the, of the escapades of Alex and what that was like. 
creating that whole thing. Everyone, good night around the world. Thank you again. Take care.